Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today, uh, someone who's become a kind of regular guest by now, Jessica Plummer, is back and we're kicking off a special new series. We're going to be talking about the history of comics. Um, so often in these discussions about the role of ethics and superheroes, people love to get in discussions about like, okay, but what was the original intent and where did this all get started? As well as like, have, have we always had these kind of ethical questions in our superheroes? Jessica is a wealth of knowledge on these topics, and so I'm really excited that we're going to spend maybe about one episode a month for a little while um, diving into different period, periods of comic book history. Today we're kicking off that idea and talking about the original kind of start of the comic books, the golden age of comic book heroes. All that and more after this commercial break, we have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. And as I said, I'm joined by Jessica. Jessica, how are we doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. I'm, uh, it's been fun planning this topic with you. For the last week, we've been having these uh, running IM conversations where I have to keep thinking, like, this is great, but let's make sure we save some of this for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but I think clearly there's going to be a ton to talk about. Definitely. Let's kind of just start. Um, I want to ground this a little bit um, in talking about why this history matters. And I know... For me, one of the jumping off points is the comment that I hear a lot these days about why is there suddenly so much like ethics and morality and justice in comics? What, what's your kind of take on that and, and, and why you think it's important to, not just for that reason, but, but for a bunch, to, to look back at the history of, of these characters and this story, kind of storytelling? Yeah, I mean, I think like the, the first answer to that is that this is not sudden, this is not new. There have always been... Well, first of all, I feel like a lot of people saying, why are there so many politics in comics are actually saying, why is there a black character or a gay character in this comic? And being black or gay or otherwise marginalized is not being political. It's just a way of existing. Um, And to have every single character be a straight, white, cis, able-bodied man is also quite political. Um, So... what is defined as politics in comics is sort of uh, a straw man to begin with. Um, But yeah, like there are plenty of stories today that have a clear political point of view. There have always been stories that have a clear political point of view. The X-Men have always been a metaphor for marginalized groups. Um, You go back to the earliest days of comics and you see things like Captain America punching out Hitler on the cover of his first appearance when we were not at war with Germany at the time, which is Mm -hmm. like, honestly, a mind bogglingly political statement. I cannot imagine a mainstream comic book publisher printing a comic with a superhero punching a foreign head of state in the face on the cover today. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about that. I know like during the 80s, you certainly had a lot of popular media that was like, you know, uh, you know, Tom Cruise punching out Mikhail Gorbachev or something like that. I don't even know Tom Cruise, but, you know, that, that kind of level of a hero. Um, but but it was it was rare. And even that was Cold War. And yeah, at a time in like the 1930s when there was so much still, you know, question about would we go to war? Or would we not? And the um, interventionist side of uh, you know the isolationist side of American politics was still quite strong. That, that's a very dramatic message. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think that it's always been there. I think also, you know, some of these creators that we'll get into had really specific agendas that they wanted to put forward, and they had really clear points of view that they were 
vocal about outside of the comics as well. And plenty of them didn't. Plenty of them were just telling stories because this was their job and this is the kind of job they could get. And Mm -hmm. they were just churning it out. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't political because every artist approaches what they're doing with a point of view. Um, And when you're telling a story about justice, which is what a superhero story is, and you're saying this person is carrying out what is right and good against what is wrong and evil, that is in and of itself inherently political. So I think it's also really interesting to look at what that meant at the time and what it continues to mean and how it has and hasn't changed. One one point I think that you brought up that I think is really important here is this idea that people often only call it political when it starts to be something that is that either isn't them, either in terms of a character who doesn't look like them or a character who has beliefs that are different than theirs. Um, I, I've always really loved this idea that we need to be careful of thinking like that the status quo isn't just as political as a statement about something that isn't the status quo. Um, and th- this comes to me especially like um, – you know, sometimes you'll hear discussions about why are all cops crooked in some versions of these stories. Um, and, and the response to that is, well, yeah, sure, a story about a crooked cop has an agenda. But a story about a clean cop and a story in which the police are all upright and good, that has just as much of an agenda, mm-hmm. uh, even if it's not intentional. It's still making a statement of this is what we think about the police. And I, I think it is somewhat a commentary on the genre in, – like, there's an extent to which any story is going to be, to that regard, political because you're always commenting on whatever's happening in your world. Superheroes, pretty much by definition, are involved with topics that have a lot of political ramifications. Crime, justice, injustice, violence, um, working within or outside the law. Like, all of these things have incredible political ramifications. And on some level, I don't know how you could tell a story about people who are fighting injustice without having to ask the question, what is justice? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think you can tell a story, period, without, like, when I was in college, I took a few film classes, and then I was like, I don't know how this works, and I do not want to touch one of these expensive cameras (laughs) because I will break it. So I stopped taking film classes. Um, But one of the things that uh, one of my professors said early on that really stuck with me was there's no neutral place to put the camera because Mm, when you decide where you're putting the camera you're deciding what you are not filming yeah that's a great point and i think that that's relevant to any kind of art or storytelling not just fiction non-fiction storytelling as well because this professor was a documentarian um as well as as an academic you're deciding what you're going to put in there and from what angle and what you're going to leave out. And those choices all carry weight, even if it is just a silly 10 cent pulp adventure, which many of these are. And that's part of what makes them fun. Like they can do both of those things at the same time. And I think that's going to be a very important point as we go forward, because some of our listeners may be a little confused because I've been fairly adamant about the idea for most of the run of this podcast that our main focus is on the heroes who make it to the screen, whether that's the big or the small screen. And we've we've done a couple of episodes on comic books specifically, but we mostly cover things that get to the screen. But I think all these questions are relevant for exactly what you're talking about, especially because, and as I think we get 
as we start to um, go through our history and get into, um, you know, the times when like Batman and Superman and all these characters start to appear more and more on television and the movies, that's going to be one of the most interesting questions is how does the, the, as you put it, the camera angle shift when it goes from a comic book, which has some circulation, but you're now a much more mass mass uh, scene movie or TV show or something like that. Um, so I think there's some very interesting stories, interesting examples of where the camera probably gets a lot. Um, I'm trying to think what's the word. Uh, the, the camera angle attempts to be a lot more neutral in a lot of the TV and movies than it would appear to be in the comic books. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff for us to, to dive into there. Yeah, definitely. So with that, let's, let's get started on what we're talking about this issue. Um <laughs> You can tell I'm in the comic book sense. I said issue. This episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking today about what I believe is understood to be the golden era of comic books, right? From the, the kind of the start of comic books through the mid-50s? Yeah, approximately. Um, so the history of comics, and I should uh, specify here that we're talking um, almost entirely about superhero comics mm-hmm. and specifically American superhero comics. Um other genres are going to come up, um, horror and crime and funny animal and romance and westerns. Those are all a little bit relevant to some of the stuff we're going to be talking about mostly, I think, in our next episode. Um, But this is sort of a a bit of a narrow focus. um, And uh, that's just because that's both the the remit of this podcast, superhero (laughs) ethics, and also that's what I know the best. Um, Right. But... uh, this is, again, a very American superhero lens through which to look at comic books. And if I were French, for example, I would have a very, very different take on things. Um, I'm but sure. yes, this is the golden age. Um, it so is... what do we mean by that, by the golden age? So uh, we're talking about roughly uh, 1938, which is when Superman, who was the first comic book superhero, debuted to approximately 1955 when we say the golden age um but in this particular episode we're going to be talking mostly about world war ii um the the landscape changes pretty significantly after world war ii um and we have some really interesting meaty stuff to talk about there (laughs) next episode which we're very excited about so everybody should tune into that um but yeah we're talking about basically the first half of the golden age and just for further context um that is followed by the Silver Age, which is roughly uh, mid-50s through to 1970. Um, mm-hmm. And then the Bronze Age is 1970 to 1985. Approximately, historians debate about these dates. You know, every, right. not everybody agrees. Um, these are all very DC-focused. They're all based on, like, a particular DC comic. So Marvel fans mm. are probably like, excuse you. Um <laughs> I mean, just the naming alone is very interesting because, you know, gold, silver, bronze, that's in cultural parlance. I think most people, the first thing they think of is the Olympics, and that is first place, second place, third place. So already we're sort of setting up an idea of, you know, things were the best in the golden age and then have gotten I, – I know – I'm sure that that's not what the terms mean, but it's interesting that that's nomenclature that's used because it seems to be this idea of, like, everything was great, the best back then and then it's just gotten steadily worse. Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, I'm not sure who originally came up with that terminology. It would probably be, like, a 30-second Google. But uh-huh. um, I, I, the, the terms would have been applied, um, I guess, in the 80s 
possibly the 90s when this sort of looking back at the industry became more prevalent um and scholars would have been working very much in what was then called the modern era which we may or may not still be in but that's (laughs) like a 35 year period which is way longer than any of the others so i think we've got to break that up a bit more um and so i think it's also uh that that dating or implied ranking um, comes very much from a perspective of however old the person was who came mm-hmm. up with that terminology and what they were looking back on. I would say if we're ranking in terms of like biggest success and impact, then what we think of as the Silver Age, that middle period, would absolutely come first. Right. Um, but in terms of what produce the best art that's always going to be subjective and they are very very different eras and people have very different preferences and there are some things that i really adore about each era and there are some things that i find incredibly tiresome about each era Um, and here's an interesting parallel that i'd not actually first of all i think it's interesting to note that um i think the terms are also in themselves references to the same nomenclature which is used about hollywood and and american cinema but the other thing is um there's a topic that I've been discussing a lot in Star Wars fandom, which is the idea of that you always – with something like Star Wars, which is not for children but beloved by children and then beloved by adults who often saw it when they were children, you all, the thing that you saw when you were a kid is always what you define as your favorite. Um, and comic books I, – I I'm curious your thought on this. Is it fair to say that there's a similar thing that can happen where for a lot of folk – the comic books that you grew up with, that you fell in love with when you were 10, are pro- or if you fell in love with them as a teenager, as, as some of these are, as we'll talk get aimed more towards teenagers, but that those are always going to be, for you, the golden age. That, that that's the... It's always harder to read as an adult the thing and compare that to your memory of reading something when you were 14. Oh, 100%. I didn't read comics. I mean, I read Archie comics and, like, newspaper comic strips as a kid, mm-hmm. but I didn't read superhero comics until early college so I started in like 2002 2003 so I was I was an adult and I still think that comics from the late 90s and early 2000s like that's my era that's what the characters should be like those are the best comics those are the stories I'm the fondest of and the most nostalgic about um which I think I think you're going to have a hard time finding any comic book fan who doesn't think that whatever they first read is the best comics like it, it's yeah. just it's universal i mean for me it wasn't reading but i was i'm a child of the late 70s so uh christopher reeve will always be the perfect pure image of superman in my mind and michael keaton will always be the perfect pure batman um because it's that same thing you know it's that the, those are the ones that kind of you know baby duck imprinted on me <laughs> um so, so with that, let, let's let's then uh, start to take a closer look, and let's start with where it all began, uh, Superman. Um, w- talk to us about how Superman got started, and and because I think a lot of folks probably know that Superman's the first superhero, but don't really know much more than that. And, and his history is so rich, and I think so relevant to what we're talking about. Sure. Um, so, Superman, uh, as I mentioned, uh, debuted in Action Comics number one in 1938, um, and he is considered the first. Uh, 
comic book superhero, it's kind of a murky, like who is the first superhero is kind of a murky question to answer because like, what does that exactly mean? Like if you have a guy running around in tights, but he doesn't have powers, is he a superhero? If he has powers, but he doesn't have tights, is he a superhero? Um, And there are a lot of sort of pulp characters from, you know, dime novels and comic strips and radio shows from around that time that may or may not be considered a superhero, depending on how you look at it. Like the Green Hornet is kind of a superhero and he had like a Uh superhero movie, but is he? I don't know. Um, (laughs) With the uh, Superman specifically, um, you have uh, oh god, I'm completely blanking on his name. All of a sudden, please edit this part out. Uh, oh, the the writers, uh, Sh- Siegel and Schuster. No, no. Um, there's a predecessor, and I'm completely blanking. Ah, okay, starting that again. Um, (laughs) with Superman, um, he has one specific predecessor, Doc Savage, whose real name was, yeah, his real name was Clark Savage, and he was known as the Man of Bronze rather than Steel, uh, and he does look quite tan on some of these pulp covers, (laughs) um, and he had a Fortress of Solitude, so you can see where, like, some of these some of these ideas are being picked up by uh, by comic book creators. You see a lot of that with Batman, where he like things were liberally stolen from like the Shadow right. and Zorro and the Phantom. Um, but yeah, so uh, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who were a couple of Jewish guys uh, from Cleveland, and um, they had been kind of messing around with the idea for a while. And first, they, they liked the idea of some a character called the Superman. So there was like a, a villainous version who was bald and really is a lot more like what Lex Luthor would eventually come to be like. And then mm. they're like, oh, maybe we'll make him a hero. Like they played around with the concept for quite a while um, before they finally landed on what we now know as Superman. And they pitched the character to a number of publishers before it got picked up by what was then called National Comics. Um which would eventually become DC, which is short for Detective Comics, which is the comic that Batman first appeared in. So technically the name of the company is Detective Comics Comics. <laughs> of course it is. It's always fun. But yeah, uh, they they finally got picked up by National, and um, Superman appears on the cover of Action Comics number one, and it, it was just a brand new concept like right. this big strong guy lifting a car like it's funny when you think of all of the things that superman can do now and picking up a car is not that exciting comparatively but at the time yeah oh just a car but at the time it was it was completely new like there nobody had ever seen anything like that um and yeah. comic books themselves as like an actual physical object were only like i don't know five years or something old at that point it was also a very very new format you'd had the comic strip for a while as you mentioned in newspapers Um, yeah yeah this this idea of like actually selling it as a book on like a newsstand or something that was pretty new yeah so um political cartoons had been around for centuries at this point and then 
um, comic strips really picked up as like a, a hot item um, at the end of the 19th century, especially with the circulation wars between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Um, the, the term yellow journalism actually comes from The Yellow Kid, which was a really popular comic strip that was mm. published by both of them at different times, like, and also at the same time, because uh, I think it started at Pulitzer and then um, the artist went to Hearst and Pulitzer just kept publishing it with a different awesome. artist, if I'm recalling that correctly. I literally Copyright, schmoppy right. <laughs> it didn't exist then. I literally wrote an article about this like a week ago and I don't That's remember. That's awesome. Um, but, um, oh, and speaking of copyright, schmoppy right, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll have some relevant stuff to talk about with that too. Um, but eventually publishers were like, what if we took a bunch of these strips and we put them in a book and we stapled it together and we charged kids 10 cents for it and that worked and they were like right. what if we came up with new stuff and we stapled it together and that worked and that was comic books yeah i, I will just need to say for those audience members who share this uh you said pulitzer and hearst and i just had to physically stop myself from singing newsies um <laughs> I think but, you know I'm always physically stopping myself from singing newsies in my I do, heart. I do. I do. We're going to find some way. Like the 200th episode is really just going to be a karaoke of that entire show. Yes. Um, we'll find a way to do it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's – to me, it's really interesting to kind of ground that um, in understanding like what's what's the universe into which Superman is born. Um and and to me, then the next question is: Let's talk about his his parents. Um, and I you made an offhand reference to them being Jewish, but I think that's obviously a very important part of the story, and one that's forgotten pretty often. Um, tell us a little bit more about Siegel and Schuster, and and why their background matters in terms of the character they created. Um, yeah, so they were uh, pretty much, um, from what I recall, you know, I've read a bit about them. Um, well, I've read several biographies of Superman, which wind up being biographies of them, at least in the first third or so. Um, yeah, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster um, were fairly typical, from what I've read, fairly typical, um, you know, Jewish kids at the time, um, second generation, working class parents. Um, they'd lived, uh, it's funny, if I'm recalling correctly, they had sort of lived in the same neighborhoods in different cities, which is actually not that unusual because there were definitely distinct Jewish neighborhoods at the time. Right. Um, but in New York and in Cleveland, and I believe also in Canada for a bit, um, mm. which is why it's, you'll see many, many cities across North America claiming to be the spiritual birthplace of Superman. Oh, I didn't um, even know that. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah which is adorable um <laughs> i mean and they all are is kind of the great thing about superman um he belongs to everybody but um yeah there a lot of the creators at the time um were jewish uh we'll also see with batman both of his creators bob kane and bill finger um right. captain america joe simon and jack kirby um other creators who you know were we may not talk about the characters that they came up with specifically, but Jerry Robinson, who co-created Robin and the Joker, um, obviously Stan Lee was right. like 13 at the time, but eventually <laughs> he'll be part of the story. Like a lot, a lot of Jewish fellas. Um, and that's not an accident uh, because at the time, if you were an artist, the good jobs and the good money 
were in advertising or maybe a comic strip. Um, and actually, I believe to this day, you make more money doing a comic strip than you do uh, drawing a comic book. Um, and a lot of Jewish men couldn't get those jobs. Um, right. And you'll also see uh, in the Golden Age and the Silver Age, you'll see Italian names popping up. Um, there were black people working in comics. There were women working in comics, um, not in the same numbers as like the very well-known Jewish names, but it was because it was harder for these people to get the more prestigious jobs drawing right. like, you know, arrow shirt ads for Esquire right. magazine or whatever. Or writing um, Little Orphan Annie or whatever it was, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. Which is, speaking of political comics, oh uh-huh. my God, that dude was the most Republican of Republicans. <laughs> like, he killed off Daddy Warbucks because he hated the New Deal so much that he was like, it would kill him. It would kill yeah. him, and now Annie's an orphan again. <laughs> See what you've done, FDR. <laughs> That's beautiful. But anyway, which, yeah, so back to... I, I, I think this is so relevant because... Um, and, and here, you, you're probably going to know more about this than I do, although I may more about uh, some of that the, the, the religious side of it. So much of the Superman story is rooted in Jewish ideas. Um, you know, I mean, his, his uh, life is... Uh, his coming to this planet is very much of a Moses story. In terms mm-hmm. of like you know being set into a you know a basket or a pod you know and, and sent to come here, um, being the the outsider who's also come to like rescue people and to, to save save the world for truth justice and all that. Um, to me, there's just there's so many Jewish themes that resonate with uh, Superman, especially. Well, and it's not just um, the the Moses analogy, um, which is I very important, but also the then current refugee analogy, like he's yeah. the last survivor of a dying world, which was something that was extremely relevant to Jewish people in the late thirties who were coming from Europe or whose families had come from Europe and had relatives still there. And, you know, the, the extent of the Holocaust wasn't known, but Jewish people knew it was happening because you know, you right. get a letter from your cousin Oscar that was like, they tell us we have to leave. Like, right. they knew. And we knew that the, the anti-Semitism in, in um, Germany was getting bad. But even here in the United States, you had a number of uh, Father Coughlin, I think I'm pronouncing that right, is, was an Irish priest on the radio mm-hmm. who was very pro-Nazi, very anti-Jewish. Um, you know, and there was a number of other, I mean, this country has, has for, for most of from its history until even quite recently, there's obviously been a huge amount of anti-Semitism. But the 1930s and, and late 20s were a very – anti-Semitism was a very prevalent part of American culture. Um, oh, absolutely. In part what you've been talking about, about with the Depression and, and I know the a lot of the, the um, blood libels and, and ideas about the, the Jewish banker conspiracies and stuff. In the height of the Depression, those were, those were at an all-time high. Oh yeah, and there was there was a huge um, like American Bund Party rally uh, in Madison Square Garden at the time. Which mm-hmm. I mean, that's Nazis. Um, yeah. There was a Nazi rally in New York City, um, and there I mean, there was also I'm not equating everyday Germans with Nazis, but there was an enormous German population in America and 
specifically in New York at the time as well, which is also where the, the majority of the Jewish population was. And in and, Cleveland, also the strong German population. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were, I, I think it is understandable. Again, the extent of the atrocities were by no means known that there would be a strong pro-German sentiment. Um, right among those populations. Uh, there was also a huge Italian population in New York City at the time, and they were, at the time, ex- quite marginalized. Um, like, there was a ton of anti-Italian prejudice in the 30s. Like, um, I read once that um, Italian kids weren't allowed to go home from school for lunch because their uh, parents would feed them Italian food. And yeah, uh, the city was trying to force them to assimilate by eating you know, things that didn't taste as good. Yeah. American food at the time was pretty bad. I I think it's often forgotten that the KKK was founded on three real pillars of hate. Then the three groups that they were most virulently against were people of color, absolutely, Jewish people, and Catholics. Um, And primarily they meant Southern European Catholics. While Um, we're talking about the KKK, uh, can I tell you my favorite Superman story from this era? Please do. Because it's amazing. So one of my favorite stories from this era um, is actually a story. It's a true story um, about something that was done on the radio show, The Adventures of Superman. So Superman was an instant sensation, um, sold millions of comic books very, very quickly, and very quickly got a radio show, which is the equivalent of getting a movie or TV show now because there wasn't TV, but everybody had the radio. Um, And... Uh, in the post-war years, they did a story called The Clan of the Fiery Cross. Um, it started in 1946. And basically what happened was uh, this guy, Stetson Kennedy, um, had spent all this time infiltrating the KKK, like learning like all their secrets and how they operated and like supposedly like secret catchphrases. That part is probably not true. Um, <laughs> like the code words and things. Right. Uh, like I... Well, we'll get there. So Stephen Kennedy was like, these guys are horrible and the world needs to know how horrible they are. So he contacted the producers of the Superman radio show, who were also Jewish, um, because it was listened to by everyone and was like, hey, can we do a story about this? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And so they wound up telling this story. I think it was 16 episodes long. Um, where basically uh, Superman fights the Klan. Um, That's awesome. It's amazing. It gets kicked off because Jimmy Olsen is on a youth baseball team with a Chinese-American kid, and the Klan is after him, and uh, it kind of spirals from there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all... I mean, the, the radio show is public domain, so you can literally just go on YouTube and look up the Clan of the Fiery Cross. It's Clan with a C. Um, and you can listen to all the episodes. And they're amazing. First of all, the radio show is, like, really good. Um, yeah. But Bud Collier, who played Superman, was, like, the person to essentially invent, like, what if I had a different voice for Clark than for yeah. Superman? And it works really, really well. Um, but... Uh, you have characters like Superman and Perry White and Jimmy Olsen like saying hate has no place in this country. Intolerance has no place in this country. Like all of you 
people hiding behind your hoods are cowards. And it's, it's so both inspiring and also comforting to hear that yeah. from these beloved characters because it is an extremely clear and strong political stance. Um, and it, KKK recruitment numbers went down because of this storyline. Oh, yeah. And the story, the, the thing that I mentioned before that's apocryphal is that they actually broadcast like the secret passwords of the KKK in these episodes, which... <laughs> If you, they didn't. Like I've listened yeah. to it, they didn't. There's nothing in there that's a password. But it's still a great story, and it's it really is. a great real life story as well as a fictional story. And DC actually just um, put out a kids graphic novel by Jean Luen Yang um, called Superman Smashes the Clan, uh, which mm. is an adaptation of the radio show story, and it's absolutely wonderful. I cannot recommend it enough read it buy it and read it immediately it's wonderful um but yeah and it's like, fantastic because at the time they were doing that i mean that was a brave statement that'd be kind of like you know um captain america saying you know black lives matter two years ago you know um when it wasn't like just universally accepted not universally but like much more accepted the way it has been in the last few months um and it's great to see i mean you talk about clan recruitment numbers going down i'm sure that's true I would also bet that some distributors in the South decided to stop carrying Superman for a while because of that, you know? And I, I love hearing stories like that, that back to the origins. Um, it's funny because when you were talking about that, I the one that I was going to bring up, which is a, another favorite of mine, because uh, this one is even more pointed at Nazi Germany, um, in Superman number 10 in 1941, um, they uh, – and I, I've, not, I've only read about the story. I've not been able to find a copy of it, though if you can help me find it, that would be fantastic. Um, but it's where Cloak and Lois are sent to, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, the Ducalia Americans Horse Festival. And the Ducalians are clearly supposed to be a German um, stand-in of, like, you know, German-Americans. Because what happens in it is that they're setting up this sports festival in which the idea is that they're going to prove that the Ducalians, who are blonde and blue, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, are the, you know— most athletic, most physically fit, most perfect Americans, and that therefore they will be uh, like that they should rule America. And they, they use Heil Hitler salutes and all this kind of stuff. And it's very clearly a reference to the 1936 Olympics that were held in um, Munich, I think Munich, somewhere in Germany, uh, possibly Berlin, but where Hitler was very much trying to show that, you know, the German uh, is the most like athletic and perfect. And it's where Jesse Owens won races. And I was so going to say, isn't that the Jesse Owens Olympics? Exactly. That's why it meant so much, because it was, you yeah. know, right in the eye to, to what, you know, Hitler would have referred to as like a lesser race. Um, and, and apparently it's the exact same story. So, uh, Clark Kent goes there as a journalist, but winds up deciding to enter himself into a lot of the competitions because the fact that he looks, you know, dark haired and isn't like, you know, this blonde ubermensch that he defeats them. It really matters a lot. Um, and that's in 1941, before the United States has gotten into World War II. Um, and to me, that's another one of these stories where very clearly with a political agenda and not just of a we're anti-hate but a very specific like those people over there that real group that you as american citizens know about they are hate they are wrong that's what superman stands against yeah no absolutely and i mean i think that's that's also coded into like look we look at superman he's obviously the this you know ideal of masculine power and beauty that's pretty clear right from the get-go like even 
golden age comics the art can be kind of rough yeah um, it's not it's not always the best um and it's it was rushed and it was printed on real cheap paper but joe schuster oh my goodness could he draw beautifully when he had the chance and like his his clark can be quite handsome um but you know that the clark kent superman dichotomy is also playing into that sort of weak nebbish jewish man stereotype very the much pushover so. the guy who won't stand up for himself um which is also i mean whenever i think about that in the uh context of world war ii i think about the fact that every ghetto in europe had an uprising and we don't learn about them yeah um because jews are always portrayed as weak victims in narratives about world war ii and that simply was not the case Mm -hmm. um i I remember go ahead just just that 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 duality of clark embodies that um which i also feel like i kind of implied that i don't find jewish men attractive and that's not true jewish (laughs) men are very handsome (laughs) i understand what you mean it's interesting um uh I have family members who were born in the uh, late 30s and early 40s, and I remember talking to some of them about how um, – and this is not in any way a comment on the state of Israel today, and that's obviously a very complicated subject. But that growing up, you know, they were learning about Israeli military victories in the late 40s and 50s when they were young. And that's part of why it was so shocking to everyone because the idea of Jews being militaristic and having like, you know, strong Jewish warriors was, was so outside of any concept of Judaism that people had grown up with. Um, and, and so I thought that's another sort of interesting commentary in all of this. Um, one theory that I've heard, and I, it, it certainly seems to make sense to me, but you've done more of the history, and so I'm curious if you're if you know if this was intentional or just a weird coincidence. Um, essential to Nazi philosophy of the time was an idea that they had borrowed from Nietzsche uh, and somewhat twisted, but of the Ubermensch, which can be translated as Superman. Um, do, do you think there was anything intentional there about taking this term that certainly they would have been hearing used all the time by Nazis as like the Aryan Superman and, and intentionally using that wording? Or is that just a coincidence because super is a great adjective to go with man? Yeah, no, I don't think so, because um, remember, they were using uh, or uh, Siegel specifically because he was writing the stories was using superman as the name of his villainous character before oh interesting yeah they made him into a hero uh so yeah i i think it was probably just coincidence but it is a nice it's very satisfying that it worked out yeah. that way and it, it's interesting because especially for anyone who thinks that this was like you know a tiny little thing and and not real real protest uh, there's actually a, um, an article that Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, wrote in one of the major Nazi publications in 1940, all about Superman specifically and about how awful Superman was and that Superman mm-hmm. was this Jewish conspiracy. And um, I just I look at that. I was like, oh, it'd be interesting, I think, to, to, to write something as this little comic book. And then the head of the regime that you're trying to critique is actually talking about you as an enemy. Like that's that's a nice sign you've made it in a way. Well, I mean, again, like, yeah, it was it was a. Uh... Uh, the comics were disposable pulp entertainment, but they were also selling in the millions at the time. Yeah. The circulation was so much higher than a comic book today, and also there was a lot less mass media. Um, right. So 
at that time you would have had, you know, millions of comics on the stands. Um, I'm not sure if the radio show and the um, animated, so there were, there were um, the Fleischer brother cartoons, uh, which were uh, in the movie theaters at the time. So, you, you know, back in the day, you'd go to see a movie and you'd also see a cartoon and a newsreel and like a short film. Um, so there were Superman live action serials starring Kirk Allen. And there were also the um, Fleischer brother cartoons um, with Bud Collier as the voice of Superman. So like right. he was, he was covering all of the mass media that was available. Like if it was a form of mass entertainment, there was Superman there. Yeah. Um, on the, uh, talking about the creators actually being threatened uh, directly by the people that they were opposing, um, this is jumping over to Marvel, or at the time, timely comics. Um, but one of my all-time favorite stories about Jack Kirby is, you know, they were, they were putting out these quite opinionated Captain America comics that were very anti-Hitler, and some American Nazis showed up at the time. I love this story. We're like, where's the guy who's making these Captain America comics? Cause we want to fight him. And Jack Kirby, who was like five feet tall, who's a tiny little man was like, all right, <laughs> like, was ready to go down and absolutely fight them because that's the kind of guy Jack Kirby was. And I love him. Yeah. <laughs> they did not let him fight them, but he would have because <laughs> Yeah, very much so. And I know, um, I know Stan Lee told that story quite often um, in terms of like when people were worried about, you know, them getting into trouble. Um, there, there's one more aspect of the Superman story that I want to comment on and, and, and hear your thoughts on it all. Um, and then let's move on to some of these others and maybe a good time to transition to Jack Kirby. Um, but is him – because we've talked a lot about where he comes from in Jewish culture. And I, I think it's also important to understand that the way in which he is maybe – intentionally maybe just because it's the the language they grew up with that there are a lot of ways in which he fits into um jewish messianic ideas and the only reason i talk about this is for me as someone who is jewish family i'm a, I'm a practicing christian in my religion there's an awful lot of attempts to to label superman today as a christian messianic figure um certainly zach snyder i know uh jessica you've talked about this at length on your um uh, Superman podcast, Fights and Tights, which I strongly recommend people listen to. You know, the Zack Snyder movie makes very explicit Christian references. Um, and I, I think that there's something really problematic about this because, you know, there's truth to the idea that, that Superman's story seems similar to Jesus's in some way, but it's only because the Jesus story was written intentionally to be to fit into the Jewish messianic thought that comes from Jewish prophets, specifically Isaiah. And there's a lot of ways in which the Superman story fits into those. But I, uh, uh, there's actually a, I'll see if I can find it for the, um, uh, uh, for the show notes. There was a first, uh, first century rabbi, uh, who was w quite well known at the time who, who said that sort of the essence of Judaism is to fight for, um, truth, justice, and peace. Now it's obviously in Hebrew, but that's the way it's most often translated is that exact wording, truth, justice, and peace. Um, and so there's questions about if that inspired truth, justice in the American way. And that's obviously you can debate that till the cows come home. I'm sure it's never been explicitly documented one way or the other. But both from the, the Moses story elements we talked about, from some of the idea of the Isaiah prophecies being about the champion who comes from afar. Um, in, mean, the in the prophecy, it sounds, Kal-El sounds like Hebrew. Right? Yeah. I mean, Kal-El 
sounds like Hebrew. There's also um, in in Jewish folklore the concept of the golem. The golem being a uh, it's a man of clay who is built to to fight the enemies of Judaism and to protect the people. But one of the essential parts is that the 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 letters of the golem's name must be part of must be on his body, um, which the S on Superman is often thought to sometimes be a reference to or something like that. Um, this is not a theological podcast. I don't want to go too deep into it, but I I think it's important to understand that that history because, you know, there's a long tradition of Christians taking elements of Judaism and and making them their own. Which I mean, the, the religion grows out of Judaism. That makes some sense, but claiming them in ways that that ignore the Jewish roots and can be very anti-Semitic in doing so. And I feel like when Christians claim Superman as a Jesus figure, that's absolutely what's happening. Um, especially because part of where Christian and Jewish messianic thought split is over whether the, you know, the Christian idea of the Messiah is that the, the Messiah is supposed to die for the people. The Jewish idea of the Messiah, at least especially as was understood in the 30s, is that the Messiah is supposed to live and fight for the people. Um, I think it's very clear which one of those Superman falls into until Superman dies and we get Christian messianic thought all over again. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to, to briefly touch on that because I think it's, especially since Zack Snyder, but if you Google um, Superman and Messiah, you don't get much of the Jewish thought. You get tons of Christian writers claiming that Superman is Jesus and Jesus is Superman. And I think that that is not only inaccurate, but but, but fairly insulting to the, to the authors for who are playing in a similar pond, but from a very different background. Yeah, no, I would, I would absolutely agree with that. I, on a personal level, as a Jewish Superman fan, um, I hate the Superman is Jesus interpretation. I, mm-hmm. Like, as, as a matter of personal preference, I really, really do not like it. Um, and again, if, you, if you'd like to hear more, I have a podcast about the <laughs> Superman movies, and they're pretty much all into that idea. They're great podcasts. You don't like the Christopher Reeves movies, which... which breaks my childhood heart but you've basically <laughs> taught like me why that four. those are not the real superman <laughs> yeah i understand i, I like number four it was goofy i enjoyed it um i mean the, the, i think absolutely Zack snyder has a lot to answer for when it comes to well a lot of things but specifically when it comes to uh the superman as jesus metaphor but that's i mean that dates back to richard donner like that's in the first superman movie 100 percent, and it's also um and in superman 2 as well um and it's also all over superman returns Mm. um so this is which of course is just sort of like weird donner fan fiction movie yeah that that movie is a (laughs) <laughs> there's a i have a podcast about it anyway yeah. the, um, there's, there's one last quote i wanted to throw out and make well, well definitely here in a year oh, go ahead so just to finish the thought um i personally i don't like that take um i like i said earlier superman is for everyone i think it is a valid take to say there is like there is a jesus metaphor that can be read into this story but as you said, it has overwhelmed every other take. And I've seen so many people confidently say, not only Superman is Jesus, but that's what was intended. That was the original yeah. intent. 
And I do think that there is a certain amount of, you know, we, we don't want to get too hung up on the original intent because uh, Siegel and Schuster only wrote and drew so much of Superman and they were only involved for so long um, and they, they lost a lot of creative control quite early, um, mm-hmm. which that's why Jerry Siegel sued DC a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the other, I mean, Mort Weisinger, who was the editor of the Superman books for a very long time, Jewish guy. Like there was still really? a lot of Jewish voices from the involved. <laughs> but yeah. right, I, I mean, I'm just I'm <laughs> stabbing the dark here. Um, but yeah, I don't have theoretically, I don't have a problem with uh, the uh, Christian messianic interpretation of Superman. What I have a problem with is that subsuming every other possible option but that's also kind of my problem with christianity so there you go and i think that's fair and i I think it like i said i don't want to go too deep into the theology of it but i think it's important to understand that christian messianic thought is basically the idea that the character of jesus the person of jesus was a fulfillment of not of a jewish prophecy and i think that that becomes important because what a lot of christians can forget is that the Jewish people continued to believe in that prop, didn't think that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, but continued to believe in it. And it certainly, um, and my knowledge here is more anecdotal, but, but I've certainly heard this from often was that in the thirties and forties at a time when Judaism was especially considered most under attack, um, that, that, that thought was, was very prevalent. And I, I, um, have heard a number of theories, about the idea that, that, you know, whatever their personal religious beliefs, that this would have been part of the mythologies that, um, uh, uh, which I, want, I keep wanting to say Simon and Schuster, which are clearly Siegel and <laughs> Schuster, uh, that Siegel and Schuster grew up with. Um, and, and so I think it's whether intentionally or not on their part, I just think it's very important that Christians be, that any people uh, think about it, that Christians be very careful about reading that into it, as you said, because it's just, it's a, um, it's, it's a really crummy way to kind of approach it and to, to take Christianity and then try to read it back onto things to which it has no place. Um, I want to kind of close with this one uh, quote that I loved. Um, in 2005, the BBC radio did a, um, a retrospective on Superman. It was specifically about Superman's Jewish roots. Uh, and Howard Jacobson, who is a British author um, who's Jewish and talks quite a lot about Judaism, at one point said, Touch Superman with kryptonite, and he is no longer his adopted self, no longer Clark Kent, but Cal L, the boy with the Kabbalistic name, the boy from the shuttle. Uh, shuttle being a, a, a Yiddish term for a, the ghetto-type conditions many Jews lived in, in in European cities. Superman might be Jewish, but it's only as long as no one knows he's Jewish that he's capable of performing wonders, and you can't get more Jewish than that. Um, which I just thought was kind of a wonderful statement about the, the the secret identity aspect, and and probably how most people reading the Superman comics, I would guess, have have no idea of the the Jewish roots of the authors and of the character. Yeah, I mean, Jack Kirby was actually Jacob Kurtzberg. Uh, obviously not a Superman creator. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster did not change their names, but Bob Kane certainly did. Yeah, uh, he, he was Khan originally, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Stan Lee. <laughs> that was not his name. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it was Stan Lee. Um, and, that, and that wasn't just for comics. That was that incredibly widespread... Um, you know, assimilation to, to fit into a very anti-Semitic society. Um, 
I that I love that quote. That's that's a great quote. Thank you. Yeah, no, uh, you're welcome. It's it, it's from a great book that that has informed me a lot uh, called Up Up and Oyve, which mm-hmm. is uh, it's written by a rabbi and it's specifically about um, Jewish ideas uh, uh, and how how much they influence the superhero world. So so with that, let's turn to Jack Kirby and Captain Marvel. Um, sorry, Captain America. Um, because certainly I think a lot of people now think of Captain America as kind of the Marvel version of Superman. They're both the big blue Boy Scout. Even if um, Captain uh, Captain America is kind of Superman, but with his powers, you know, turned down quite significantly. Um, tell us about Captain America and how he got started. Um, yeah, so Captain America. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I I know less about Captain America. I'm a DC fan, and I'm specifically a Superman fan. Um, so that's sort of where my where my heart is. Um, uh-huh. But Captain America was uh, an early part of a popular trend. Um, I don't believe he was the first military-themed superhero. I want to say that was the Shield, um, but he was he was right on the first wave of it. Um, and obviously, after we entered the war, military heroes and war comics in general became much more popular. Um, but yes, he was created by uh, writer Joe Simon and artist Jack Kirby. Uh, he debuted in Captain America Comics number one in 1941. Um, and this was uh, before December, before right. Pearl Harbor. Um, we were not in the war, uh, but the cover of Captain America number one very famously shows uh, Captain America punching Hitler in the face. Um and uh, what's, what I think is interesting um, about the, the first appearance is it's so much more sort of fully formed uh, in 1941 than Superman. So Superman first appears in 38, Batman is in 39, and they're really, they're sort of nebulous ideas at that point. And already by 41, when we're seeing characters like Wonder Woman and Captain America, we're getting like full origins. We're getting supporting casts. We're getting a much richer, much more what we expect. Right. Um, because the formula was already starting to click into place. But I mean, if you've, if you've seen uh, the first Captain America movie, you basically know the drill. Um, mm-hmm. We've got a, a weedy, uh, American youth who uh, it's funny his name is not given for a number of pages um, but he he's too scrawny to make it into the army and then they give him the super soldier serum and then he gets all beefy and kills some Nazis and yeah. Bucky's there and I think it's funny because um, you know his name we, we now think of his name as Steve Rogers which is pretty much as waspy American as you can get but it's very important to the character that he's from Brooklyn. And Brooklyn at that time, it wasn't just Jewish, but it was, it was all the, the populations we were talking about. It was Jewish and Irish and Italian and Catholic. And it was not the like proper waspy American boy that you didn't generally come from there. And, and your description of him as this kind of like nebbishy, you know, small, thin, can't get into a fight kind of kid, that very much speaks to the image that we had of, of that we were talking about before of, of, of a Jewish man, you know, or, or also often was portrayed as like, you know, Italian, you know, the, the not, not a real American, not big and beefy, um, which I think is very, and again, I don't know how intentional that was, but that's a very interesting sort of comment on everything we're talking about. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Steve Rogers is Jewish coded in the way that I feel that 
Clark Kent is. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, fun fact, the only character we're talking about here who is actually Jewish, according to Judaism, is Batman. Um, Canonically, Bruce Wayne's mother was Jewish, which means that Bruce Wayne is Jewish. Um, Interesting. yeah, he's the least Jewish of all of them, but he's also the only one who actually is Jewish. We'll, we'll um, get into that later, but I need to just ask now, <laughs> do you think that's never talked about now? Because the thought is that a, like making a super rich, super you know rich, powerful character like the Waynes and then him Jewish would be seen as anti-Semitic? Oh, no, no. This is He's only been Jewish as of like 2008 when Kate Kane was reintroduced as okay. Batwoman. Because she is Jewish and she is his first cousin. And I think my guess is that whoever like figured out that family tree had no idea that making Kate's paternal aunt, like basically, I, I think that it was an accident, honestly. Yeah. And That's I would hilarious. not say that Bruce Wayne identifies as Jewish. <laughs> That's hilarious. I'm trying to imagine um, him. What, and, but to get back to it, yeah, I agree with you. It's not that I'm saying I think that um, Steve Rogers is canonically uh, a Jewish stand-in, but just that making him come from Brooklyn at that time, to me, is is a very clear way of saying like he's not coming from middle. He's not middle America. You know, this was not, no. he was not raised in Kansas. No, and I well. It, I'm not sure that he specifically came from Brooklyn um, in, like, it's not specified in the oh, very okay. first comic. And I'm not sure when Brooklyn was put in there as his origin. He's also um, come from the, uh, the Lower East Side, which is also a very Jewish, at the time. Um, and the other, the other interesting thing about Steve is because he is tied to World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, the the demographic, uh, the demographics of his birth and childhood never change in the way that they do with uh, all of these other characters. Like, oh, you're right. Yeah, cause... Superman is did not live through the 1930s when we're talking about the Superman today, but Steve Rogers did. The Lower East Side and Brooklyn of his childhood will always be the same because yeah. he's he was always born in the same year. Um, but he yeah, he does go back and forth between those two areas depending on the story. And I think that that, I, I, like I said, I don't think that he's meant to be coded as Jewish, but I think you're absolutely right that he is. Those, those locations are significant because I think if anything, he's Irish American. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the stereotypes there are different. Like certainly... He actually kind of flies in the face of them because uh, the Irish were considered actually to be quite violent and thuggish. Yeah. Um, so he's sort of the opposite uh, because he's this frail little artist. Um, but they were still, you know, kind of at the tail end of assimilating into American culture and they had faced a lot of prejudice. And he he is aligned with ethnically marked populations yeah i think that's think that's more what i meant it's, it's not non-wasp but how it is is, is ill-defined but i think you're right irish makes even more sense uh than, yeah than Jewish right i don't know if he's catholic or protestant canonically but he is not sort of that quote-unquote neutral right uh ethnicity the way that say bruce wayne is i believe in god and he doesn't dress like you the line to loki oh god um, <laughs> <Terrible line. laughs> um 
So let's talk about that famous cartoon, the famous comic cover where he punches Hitler. What What's the story behind that? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I think <laughs> okay. Jack Kirby just fucking hated Hitler. <laughs> That's awesome. I, don't, I mean, he absolutely like goes off and, and fights Nazis and, and third or fifth columnists and, and spies and things right from the get go. But I, I think that was just Jack Kirby, you know, feeling himself. Yeah. Like. Good for him. Good for him. And, and let's talk about because I know we're going to talk about World War Two specifically, and we'll, we'll get to the the um, the two of the characters we're going to touch on. But I wanted to talk about World War Two especially because Cap, uh, Captain America seems like a good time to discuss this. Where does um, so how, once once we're now in World War Two and now we're fighting specifically Germans and, and Italians and even more so Japanese, who tend to be the most sort of uh, horrifically depicted in a lot of the the artwork of the time. How does that change comic books? Like, what, what, where do we start to see that actually coming up in the comic book stories we're, we're going to be talking about? It does. It depends a little bit on the characters. Um, you're absolutely right that uh, the comics of this era were just hugely, horrendously racist. Um, right. There, you don't see a lot of Italians, um, like a lot of Italians presented as um, the our enemies in the war it's primarily nazis and the japanese um but germans are depicted as like human beings right just in nazi uniforms with really thick phonetic accents um the the depiction of uh japanese people is just horrendously horrendously offensive um but that actually was not it got worse um, after Pearl Harbor. 100% it got worse. Um, mm-hmm. It was not new. Um, so, uh, as I said, DC is named after Detective Comics. Batman debuted in Detective Comics number 27. If you Google the cover of Detective Comics number one, it's uh, basically just a, a headshot of a Fu Manchu-like character, and mm. it is so racist that, like, I, I don't even want to look at it. Like, it's so offensive. Um, yeah, I'm looking at it now. So it's pretty horrific. It's it's awful. And this was, I mean, this was common. Um, prior to Pearl Harbor, and this is, this is my understanding, um, I am not that well-versed on the history, um, but... Uh, Prior to Pearl Harbor, um, American pop culture depicted uh, Asians and specifically East Asia as much more of a monolith kind of a way that we do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as sort of like a general yellow peril menace kind of thing. And you'll see this a lot in Pulp Fiction, again, with characters like Fu Manchu. Um, and uh, after Pearl Harbor... Uh, Chinese characters were allowed to be heroic. Right, because they were contrast, our allies now. Exactly, in contrast to the Japanese. But even then, they are super offensive. Like, I've been reading, um, uh, I'm a huge Green Arrow fan, so I've been reading a lot of his Golden Age adventures lately, and he was on a team called the Seven Soldiers of Victory, and one of the characters on the team um there were actually eight characters on the Seven Soldiers of Victory, but one of the characters was the Crimson Avenger, and he had a sidekick 
uh, a Chinese teenage boy named Wing, he's the eighth. Like, he doesn't count. <laughs> right. Because he wasn't white, and uh, he is drawn with, like, bright yellow skin and buck teeth, and he mixes up his L's and R's, and he's a good guy. He's a hero. Um, right, because so, yeah, he's the sort of lovable, like, mascot of the group, you know, in a way that... that... Exactly. Um, so the the anti-Asian racism, and racism in general, I mean, if you look at Golden Age comics, like, you're going to see horrific stereotypes about absolutely every ethnic group. Um, but, uh, but yeah, after Pearl Harbor, um, the caricatures of Japanese people became really prevalent. Not so much, I mean, in Superman and Batman comics, they weren't seeing combat. So you don't see it so much there, but like if you look at some, if you look at the covers of Golden Age issues of World's Finest, which were every issue had a Batman story and a Superman story. So mm-hmm. every cover has Batman and Superman and Robin like having a goofy activity together. Um, there are some really offensive propaganda covers out there. Um, oh, so sure. even though the actual content has nothing to do with the war, or if it does have to do with the war, it's like Clark Kent unearthing Nazi spies at the Daily Planet or whatever. Right. The covers are still going to say, buy war bonds on the top, and then have these horrible caricatures underneath. Yeah, I um, I, I was Googling looking looking for that kind of thing, and there's, there's a couple things where, you know, especially um, there was an expletive used for Japanese people by shortening mm-hmm. the name. Um, I'm not going to repeat here. But but there's definitely a lot of things. Yeah, looking at it, there's a lot of times where like that that's the wording that Superman uses to sell war bonds and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah. the Captain Marvel, what I'm finding, uh, seems to be the, the worst offender of this kind of thing. But even then, you know, I, I think it's it's an important thing of thinking. Like we're looking back at these hero at these writers and saying like for their time they were wonderful statements of social justice and that's great. But they still had a lot of the same biases and 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 issues of their time. Um, just in looking at this, I also found an, uh, a cover of Superman wearing a, you know, very racist depiction of a, an Indian headdress in which he seems to be like, you know, um, and it's a depiction of Superman like fighting the, the a hateful term for Native American kind of thing. So, yeah, it, it's an important lesson, I think, of, of how, you know, there's, there's some fantastic things going on here, but they're also still with, with all the, the issues of their time and that warfare especially brings a lot of that out. Um let, let's use that then. Uh, we're talking about Batman, so let's talk about Batman's history somewhat. Um, how, how does Batman get started? We talked about him as a detective, first of all. Yeah, so Batman is actually um, much less of a departure uh, from mm-hmm. sort of the established pulp tradition than a lot of the rest of these characters. Batman fits much more neatly into that pulp tradition that we see with... Um, you know, the, the shadow and the phantom and the green hornet and, uh, all of, and Zorro, mm-hmm. uh, Batman has, has so much of, a, a strong, he's drawn so much from Zorro that it has become common that his origin uh, is that Bruce Wayne was seeing a Zorro movie with his parents when they were killed, Yeah, which is sort of like a little, a little, hat tip to how much he was inspired by the character initially um and just for those who don't know the story that well since i I think the last pop culture telling of zero we've had was antonio banderas which was a okay version um uh but yes i'm a big zero devotee 
the, the, the important part of the story is he's a son of Spanish royalty or Spanish nobles, certainly, in California, who then, like, eschews all of that to be the defender of the, the poor and the trod, downtrodden by, by the nobles. So it's that same, like, the person with great wealth who then uses the great wealth to fight on behalf of those the, great we- the wealthier oppressing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was also really inspired by the Scarlet Pimpernel, like all those. I mean, you know, a guy who could lift a car was new, but a guy who wore a cloak and operated under cover of darkness and was dashing and handsome and rich is not new. Right. Uh, I mean, it was called um, and, Detective Comics, so having a new detective character clearly is not, you know, that that crazy. No, and I mean, it's not even really a detective. Like, <laughs> the first Batman story is, like, it's pretty boring <laughs> if you look at it. <laughs> It's kind of like, how did this guy become so big? Uh, and there, there are great Batman stories from that era, but Detective Comics number 27 isn't really <laughs> one of them. It's like a bunch of rich guys are getting killed off, and Batman's like barely... like he, The first couple of pages are like Bruce Wayne sitting around talking to Commissioner Gordon and being rich and idle, and then Commissioner Gordon's like, oh no, all these people are getting murdered. And then towards the end of the story, Batman shows up and is like, it was that one. Yeah. And like he punches a guy who falls into a vat of acid, and Batman's like, eh, he deserved it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But he he does it all while dressed as a bat. That was kind of the only the only thing that was different. Um and, like, early Batman comics are, are pretty weird. Um, he fights vampires, and he, he carries a gun sometimes. Um, there was, there's a story in um, an early issue of... So he debuted in Detective Comics, and that remains a Batman book to this day. But he also, uh, by the following year, got his own book called Batman. Um, and... There's an early issue of that book where he shoots a bunch of giants with a gun and editorial was like, okay, he's not going to use guns anymore. Like, this is a little much. And like at that point, like Robin was showing up and they were kind of softening him to be more family friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to they had to dial back the murderous yeah. vampire-esque what? vengeance figure thing. I mean, certainly, and I'm sure over the course of this series of episodes, we're going to talk a lot about how Batman has gone back and forth between being the, um, you know, whether he's marketed towards younger kids and it is more, as you said, family friendly, or it's like the goofy campy of like Batman 66, or is the like super grim dark of Alan, Alan Moore and some of the uh, movies that come out of that era. Um, so yeah, there's an interesting idea there of how my sense is, uh, well, we're kind of we're starting on the history, so I want to kind of throw out a theory and tell me if you think this is right. That of the sort of major like origin characters, certainly of the Trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, but also even including some of these others like Captain America, um, that Batman is probably the one who has changed the most, or sort of has yo-yoed the most back and forth between being like, you know, is he the the superhero crime fighter, or is he the um, you know, the, the world's greatest detective, or is he this, like, super dark noir, dark knight figure? Um, is it fair to say that he's kind of had the most, like, bouncing around over his, his history? I think I think he has the most flexibility. I think he has the widest range. Mm. Um, I absolutely agree with you that, the, yeah, he, he's stretched over the, yeah, the widest range. So you can have Lego Batman, and you can have <laughs> C- 
Christopher Nolan Batman. And those are both Batman. Those are both completely like I, I see those and my mind accepts both of them as being correct. And that is who Batman is. Whereas um, with these other characters, like you push Superman or Captain America too dark and audiences will reject it. Right. Uh, which we have very much seen in, you know, the past decade with Man of Steel and with the whole horrible Nazi Captain America storyline that they did in the comics a few years ago. Um, there is a certain point that audiences are like, no, that's not right for that character. Um, and with Wonder Woman and uh, the other major character we're going to be talking about um, from the Golden Age uh Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Shazam, they just don't have the exposure, I don't think. They haven't been in enough things right. um, to, to give them that that malleability that Batman has. Yeah, I, I think that totally makes sense. Um, and the Batman figure also raises a question for me that I, I think is true of the Golden Age, but I, I want to confirm with you. Well, you're saying he's a detective, and, and so he seems to be a, Batman as a crime fighter more than anything else. He's also fighting like crime lords. And we talked about how Superman and Captain America eventually fight, you know, war figures. Um, but the Superman before then, he, a lot of the, the, the uh, like one thing I was reading was that he often fights landlords, you know, and there's a lot of sort of social mm-hmm. justice in who he's fighting. He's fighting, but he's fighting like normal people who are oppressing the poor or the Jews or the, or, you know, people of color or whoever it is. Um, am I right that in the golden age, the idea of the supervillain? has not really come about yet, the villain who has superpowers as well, and that there's these, you know, rock'em, sock'em, robots-type fights that happen, uh, you know, with, with, that are all superpowers? Um, yes and no. Uh, it does... The, the supervillains super do show up in the Golden Age, but you kind of have to have a superhero first. Right. Um, so they're not there... You know, none of these none of these characters are fighting supervillains right off the bat. Um, that. That was not an intentional Batman pun. I, but I thought about it. In there anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, like it, uh, Captain America and Wonder Woman, um, who is also very much a military character, um, mm-hmm. because she is she works for the military. Like in her secret right. identity as Diana Prince, she's secretary to uh, Steve Trevor, who is a U.S. Army captain, and um, and she comes from this race of warrior women. That too, um, but I don't think that that, I mean, they're, they're very much like... That's less of an organized military, yeah, you're right. No, no, it's not that. It's more like, why are you leaving our beautiful island paradise to get involved in a war that we have nothing to do with? And she's right. like, because that guy's hot, and they're like, well, <laughs> we're all gay, so we're not really, it's not really clicking for us, but okay. <laughs> um, and, the, and yeah, no, I, w- I would argue... I would not say that the Amazons, as depicted in the Golden Age, are militaristic in mm, that way. But we'll get to Wonder Woman because yeah. there's there's a lot to talk about <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually I reread Action Comics number one and Detective Comics number twenty seven for this um, to refresh my memory. And uh, in Action Comics number one, Superman it, it begins with him flying to the governor of whatever state they're in um, to uh, save a wrongfully accused woman who's on death row. Um, 
to tell the governor, like, no, I have proof that she's innocent. And he, like, breaks down a steel door in the governor's house. Like, what kind of weird house? I don't know. It's <laughs> to, to get to him in time. Um, and then he shows up for work the next day and uh, reads a story about what he did. And then another reporter at the Daily Planet is like, hey, I got a hot tip about a wife beating downtown. Just like, why is that a, a newspaper tip? So... Clark changes to Superman and beats up this abusive husband who right. is beating his wife. Um, and then he goes on a date with Lo- with Lois and some kind of thuggish guy. Like he's, they don't say he's a gangster, but he's like kind of a gangster type cuts in on their dance. And Lois is like, absolutely not because she doesn't, even in the very first appearance, she did not have time for anybody else's nonsense. Um, and so the gangster kidnaps her and Clark has to rescue her. And then he finds out about a corrupt senator in Washington. So he terrorizes the senator for a bit. And then it kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Like, right. is he going to plummet to his death while carrying the senator? He doesn't. Spoiler. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's no there's no supervillains of any kind. Um, and the first real supervillain that we see in Superman comics comes in, I don't know, about a year or two in... Um, the ultra humanite who is uh usually just called ultra at this point okay. and he's uh he's a fascinating character because he's like this bald mad scientist and you're like oh lex luther but no not yet um lex shows up pretty soon after that but ultra he is physically destroyed in the fight with superman but he transfers he's able to transfer his mind to other bodies so he actually transfers his mind into the body of a movie starlet. Okay. <laughs> and so he like, it's this really interesting, it raises really interesting questions of gender identity because like the comics don't seem to know what pronouns to use after that. <laughs> and then eventually he ends up in the body of an albino gorilla and he's been there ever since. Oh, okay. That's, you know... <laughs> Just it's in case so anyone weird. didn't think that zaniness in comics went all the way back to the original. I love the Ultra Humanite. Such a weird character. <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, but yeah, like if, um, if you look up the Fleischer Brother uh, Superman cartoons, which are like the radio show or public domain, so I highly recommend watching them on YouTube. I think it's the first one. Superman is fighting a mad scientist who's got like this ray gun that he's shooting. Uh-huh. And so Superman just starts punching the rays themselves. And it's the weirdest visual <laughs> effect. And it's so much fun to look at. That's hilarious. So you definitely do get that kind of thing. What you don't have a lot of is sort of recurring costumed right. supervillains for, well, no, no, that's not true at all. Because you have like the toy man and the prankster right. um, for Superman. And then with Batman... I feel like Batman stories are actually more outlandish early on yeah. because he was fighting like giants and vampires and stuff. Um, and then you start to see the Joker and Catwoman and these more right. established, like the, the characters that we're familiar with. And I mean, and the Batman rogues gallery at that point, at least, and, and still to some extent today, but they're mostly at heart all criminals. You know, they, they, they want to rob things. Um, oh, yeah, they're all bank robbers. And and obviously vampires and giants maybe not quite so much. So it's fascinating that he also gets into those. Um, it's also I'm I'm the, the comment you made about the starlet. Um, one of my first thoughts was well at least there's some way of putting a woman into the story. 
Um, and it, it reminded me that we did that whole thing on Superman without talking about, I think, a very important character, Lois Lane. Um, Lois Lane. Who I know is a, a favorite of yours. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history of Lois. Um, Lois is amazing. She's wonderful. Um, she's wonderful right at the beginning. Uh, like I said, that the, there's this great scene. She's not in very much of the first issue. Um, but Clark asks her for a date at the office and she's like, Ugh, I guess. And so they go out for dinner and dancing. And while they're dancing, he's like, how come you always avoid me at the office? And she goes, please, Clark, I've been dishing out sob stories all day. I haven't the heart for another. <laughs> Which so is because she, at the time, had she was like the sob sister at the Daily Planet. And she often had to write, like, the Lovelorn column and all this really stupid right. stuff. Um, and just, like, her, her total disdain for his, like, aw, poor me, hard luck story is so delightful. Mm-hmm. And then... This, this gangster guy comes over and decides to cut in on the dance and she she doesn't want to dance with him and Clark's like, because he has to pretend to be like weak and cowardly, is like, well, just dance with him once and then we'll go home. And she slaps the gangster and she turns to Clark and she says, you want to know why I always avoid you at the office? It's because you're a coward and storms out mm. because screw you and i don't know enough about the cultural context of the time to know if that was supposed to be like poor clark she's being so mean to him because she doesn't understand right but to me like clark's like just go along with the sexual harassment lois because it would be easier for me personally yeah and she has every right to be absolutely furious and contemptuous of because the thing is lois at the time she wasn't there, there's this I think misapprehension that Lois looked down on Clark because he wasn't as good as Superman which is not true Lois looked down on Clark because he wasn't as good as her right because he did not have the courage that she did when they were being held at gunpoint when they were you know confronted with what could be a dangerous story and he was always saying oh lois maybe we shouldn't and we as the reader know it's because he needs to get away and change to superman but all she knows is that she is perfectly willing to risk her life to a do her job well and b do the right thing and he's not and she has no time for that and i think that that's a really principled Mm -hmm. and and wonderful stance um and she's also just like, she will absolutely punch a gangster in the face. She will punch a supervillain in the face. She carries a gun. Right. Like She's not the damsel she, in distress in these early stories. No, I mean, she is in distress all the time because, like, and I, I love this about Lois. She absolutely bites off more than she can chew constantly. She is repeatedly like, I can handle this situation. And she absolutely cannot. <laughs> but nobody could except Superman. Right. So it's like, I don't think that's a commentary on her. I think she's just very reckless and I but, love her for but it. But I just mean that you often in stories, and this is even true you know, up till today, where the woman character is mostly there to look pretty on the arm of our hero and then to you know scream and look helpless and needing to be rescued. Um, you know, when she gets, And that, that's to me, I guess, what I mean by the damsel in distress trope, that Lois yeah. seems to very much not fit. Um she she doesn't but i will say um one of one of the other great things about lois is because um 
because Superman was such a genre-defining character, Lois was also a genre-defining character, and so it became sort of a de rigueur for superheroes to have a reporter girlfriend. Right. And they were all like Lois. Like, That's awesome. They were all badass bitches who carried guns and didn't have time for cowards and even in like like i've read a lot of golden age blue beetle comics which i don't recommend (laughs) (laughs) um but uh joan mason was sort of the the lowest lane of those comics and she's a badass yeah so i and that was also that was something that was very much coming from hollywood and sort of your rosalind russell types who were like fast talking and independent and they had to be because the men were at war and they didn't have time to wait for somebody to come along and take care of them. And, and it's such an interesting societal thing because you talked about the context in which this is all set. Um, you know, we get into Rosie the Riveter type ideas once World War II starts. But in 1939, the men haven't gone off to war. And the idea of a woman who is, you know, working and isn't, you know, at home keeping house or, or looking for a husband is is pretty strange. And I think, as you said, like it, it's what Hollywood, the, the, the culture was moving in that direction. But it's still pretty. Well, I. Oh, go ahead. I don't think it was strange because of the depression. Mm, okay, because actually, no, that's a fair point. W- women absolutely had to work because um, many men lost their jobs, and that was how families were bringing in income. And we're at the tail end of the depression now, but um, there was a. Uh, um, there's it, this sort of trope always makes me think of um, the phrase "the forgotten man," and there's a song remember my forgotten man which is in uh, it's a busby berkeley musical i want to say it's in gold diggers of 1933 um but basically the forgotten man was a 1930s trope which was sort of your middle class uh man who before the depression had had a job Mm. and could support a family on a single income and he was out of work and um there was this this idea that uh, his masculinity was was threatened um, by not being able to support a wife and children anymore and that, um, you know, he needed sort of basically the emotional support of our culture um, during this tough time. Uh, like it wasn't just a crisis of I don't have anywhere to live and I'm hungry, but it was also this idea of, of there was also the attendant shame of it um, and the sort of corollary to that is the working girl. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Thank you. I, I was realizing, as you said that, that I, I was incorrect there. Uh, and that makes a lot more sense. Um, and to go back to what you were saying before about um, the power dynamic, I, I really like the way you say it, that, that, that Lois wants Clark to at least be as brave as she is because I think the way, frankly, I'd always understood that dynamic, and the way I often think it's portrayed, is with this very toxic masculine lens of that Lois wants him to be a manly man, you know, and that the, like, I hear that story about um, the guy harassing her, and my thought is, so is it that Lois wants Clark to step in and punch him because he's the man protecting his woman, that kind of thing? Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, that's often how people think about the Clark-Superman uh, dichotomy. And so I really like the twist that you're explaining to it that actually that, that, that it fits more with the actual story, that it's not this, you know, a real man would be macho, but just that any human being should be brave in the face of adversity. 
Right. It's not that he needs to get into a fight with some guy who's got two other thugs backing him up. But if Lois doesn't want to dance with some violent rando who just came over, Clark should support her and not be like, like, if he doesn't want to fight the guy, then they can leave together then. He shouldn't say, just dance with him to make him happy. Like, that's gross. And we're also establishing a theme that um, we ta- uh, I talked about in a uh, previous episode of Superhero Ethics about superhero dating, but that I'm sure you and I are going to talk about as we go through this history, which is the many, many terrible things that are done to the romantic partners of superheroes in order to preserve a secret identity. Um, mm-hmm. That's a story I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about. But um, let, let's, let's get back to the last two we want to talk about um, for the Golden Age. Uh, and, and an important segue coming off of Lois Lane – uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, talk to us about the history of Wonder Woman and where she where she comes from and, and how she fits into this early story. So Wonder Woman is, she's fun. Um, she first appeared in All-Star Comics uh, number eight in 1941. And she was created by William Moulton Marston, um, who is the writer and uh, artist Harry G. Peter. And um, Wonder Woman is, I mean, in terms of her origin, uh, if you've seen the Wonder Woman movie, you basically got it, uh, except they moved it to World War One. I, I think probably because they didn't want people making too many comparisons to Captain America, which fair enough. Um, but essentially, it's, you know, uh, an American army captain, Steve Trevor, uh, crashes his plane on Paradise Island slash Themyscira. It was not called Themyscira yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and Diana has never seen a man before and, uh, she nurses him back to health. And then the Greek goddesses are like, and this war is important and an Amazon should go back to America with, uh, with Captain Trevor and help America fight the war. Right. And there's like a contest to see which, who the toughest Amazon is. And they're all wearing masks. Because Diana is the princess, so she's not allowed to go. But she really wants to go because she's fallen in love with Steve. So she enters the contest in a mask. She wins. Her mother has to send her. And that's sort of the end of that story. And then um, she was already immediately slated to star in her own book, Sensation Comics, um, and then would eventually also get a book called Wonder Woman, where she gets to America with Steve. And uh, everybody's like, oh, my God, she's so strong. She's not wearing pants. This is incredible. <laughs> um, she did have, like, a little skirt originally. Right. She didn't have, like, the spanky pants right at the beginning. Um, and uh, she establishes the secret identity of Diana Prince, his mousy secretary, who looks exactly the same, but she wears glasses. <laughs> the um, magical power so very... of the glasses is a very important Golden Age idea, it seems. She also puts her hair up in a bun. So, like, she's really, like... Uh, Putting glasses on a woman and putting her hair up in a bun uh, to make her suddenly not beautiful is a very classic mm-hmm. Hollywood trope. Um, and uh, the Wonder Woman movie poked some delightful fun at it. And I also always think of um, the bitten, not another teen movie where they're like, oh, she's so hideous. Look at her and her glasses and her ponytail. <laughs> it's so um, very true. But uh, yeah, so if you. If you know anything about early Wonder Woman, it probably has to do with Marston, her creator, who was 
an interesting fellow. He was a kook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you said it nicer than I did. Um, I don't I don't mean to be negative. Um, so Marston created uh, Wonder Woman because specifically um, he looked around at uh, this exploding genre of superheroes because we got Superman. He was a hit. We immediately got 10 trillion more superheroes. And Marston said, there should be one for girls. Um, that little girls should have a hero to look up to. I'm going to create a character for girls. Like, that was absolutely an explicit right. choice on his part. Um, and at the time, um, as I've said, comic book circulation was in the millions. It was huge. Um, and they were widely read by almost every kid in America. I want to say that the statistic was something like 95% of boys and 92% of girls read comics. Um, it was definitely in the 90s for for both sort of genre or uh, genders that were actually right. documented and, at the time. And, and I just want to um, highlight that statistic because I think the idea that comics were, you know, a boy's territory until more recently I mean, that, that just blows it out of the water from the very beginning. This has always been something that there was mass appeal across genders. Absolutely. And um, I, I should also note, and I, we, we've alluded to this, but there, are, there were many other genres of comics that were being published at the time. So you had a lot of humor comics um, and uh, crime comics and uh, like teen comics, like Archie. Um, or Donald Duck, or uh, Westerns, or whatever. Right. Um, romance comics weren't really a thing until the 50s. But when I say, like, X percentage of boys and girls read comics, that doesn't necessarily mean that they read superhero comics, but everybody knew who Superman was. Right. Um, and I don't know specifically, like, what percentage of girls were reading superhero comics, but that doesn't mean that they didn't deserve to have a female hero to look up to. Yeah. Um, there's also, I also want to uh, sort of repudiate the idea that Wonder Woman was created as eye candy, like that she was meant to appeal to boys in uh, uh, like in a sex appeal sense, because readers, the readers at the time were like eight years old. Yeah. So not so much. Um, yeah. To, to Marston, maybe, but not to the actual readers. Well, and to my understanding, Marston's idea was very much like he wanted girls to have someone to look up to. He also had a lot of very interesting theories about gender and power. And he had, um, um, <laughs> trying to think how to explain this on a family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Um, he was, he was a kinkster. Yeah. I mean, and I think the it's interesting the the movie about him and his two partners has now become quite well known and is sort of thought of, at least in polyamory communities, as like the most romantic movie that's been made for that community, uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. And, and I know there's a lot of stories, that, there's a lot of back and forth about how much that movie is an accurate representation, both of the relationship that the three had and, and the role that they all played. But certainly um, from a lot of his biographies and stuff, I think this is, is made very clear he he very much believed in an idea of what I think today would be referred to as female supremacy, like that sort of that most of the problems with the world would be were because of male leadership and male rule and that women had a very different understanding of power and that if women ruled the world, that it would be much more harmonious and 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 better and very sapphic 
sorority girl pillow fight male fantasy kind of things. Um, but, but, you know, he very much had this kind of specific idea. And so he wanted to put out into the world the idea of a woman who could be in control and who, who had that kind of a power. And I, it, it, to me, it's very interesting because it's, I, I mean, we, you could, you could teach entire gender theory classes on this because it's this idea of a very sort of proto-feminist idea told through a very male lens of women are the softer sex, the gentler sex, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I, I, I'm throwing 8 million things out there to comment on, but I think it's a very interesting way to understand Wonder Woman's history, especially in where she's going to go over the course of, of the decades we're going to talk about, that she comes from a perspective of someone who had a very much a like women should be in charge kind of an idea but that idea of being laden with all sorts of you know gendered perspectives of what women should be like yeah yeah marston believed that women were superior to men but he also believed that they were superior to men because they were gentler and more loving and kinder right. which no no yeah no people are just people <laughs> um he remind, do you think it's a fair it, comparison he reminds me a lot of joss whedon in that they're both like thought of as advancing strong women characters, but but that it's very much a perspective of what a strong woman character should be through a very male lens. Um, I don't, I don't honestly know that that's fair to Marston because we have a fair amount of evidence that Whedon. Uh, is not great to women that he knows in real life. Mm, that's for her. And I don't know that with Marston. It may have been true. Um, I also think that, honestly, Marston was much more, um, his work's a lot more transparent. Yeah. And not that, like, <laughs> obviously Whedon loves a five-foot-nothing tiny little girl who can beat up everybody, but she's broken inside. Mm -hmm. Like, that's his favorite thing. But, like, Marston's stuff is, it's unsubtle. So, yeah, as, as you've alluded to, um, he, I mean, he was just a really interesting person. Like, yeah. he was a psychologist. He invented a lie detector. Like, just just a really fascinating person. And I, I invite listeners to look him up. Um, and just on the lie detector thing, but, it's by no means coincidental that her, her weapon is the lasso of truth. Like, he, oh, he was very not. dedicated yeah. to the idea of... That if you know the truth about someone, you can learn it. And and the lasso of truth was because he he invented what became the lie detector, but he didn't have much success with it. And and so the lasso of truth was in many ways his like another attempt to create a lie detector in his own weird way. Yeah. Um. But yes, he he was married, and um, he and his wife had a, a third female partner. Um. Wonder Woman was inspired by both of his partners. Um. He was also into uh, bondage and submission. Mm -hmm. um, and that is also pretty clear uh, in Golden Age Wonder Woman. Um, a lot of the framework of it, like um, the, the backstory, which we get in that in All-Star Comics number eight in Diana's first appearance, is when she falls in love with Steve and she wants to stay with him and leave the island. And her mother's like, oh, we, we should back off of this. She tells her this long story, which is actually in prose rather than in, like illustrated prose rather than comics, which is interesting, um, which is uh, based on the actual like the, the myth of Hercules encountering the Amazons and tricking Hippolyta, Diana's mother, to steal her girdle. Um, 
and it sort of expands on that idea and uh, in in the story as told by Hippolyta to Diana the Amazons are bound and so they the gods separate them from the world of man so that they will never be bound by men again and that's why they wear those metal bracelets around their wrists right. um, as a reminder of what happened to them and if Diana is bound by a man and this was a true thing about her in canon for decades and decades like if a woman ties her up she's fine she can get out of it but if a man ties her up she's stuck until somebody lets her go um but she is also constantly tying people up i mean as you said her main weapon is the lasso um but so many stories of so many golden age wonder woman stories have her defeating her enemy and she ha- she does actually have supervillains she has a lot of real weird supervillains right but defeating her enemy by tying them up and saying talking a lot about loving submission like that is a phrase mm-hmm. that is used over and over and over again in these comics and that through loving submission they can find their way to to being good which also not to go back to the theology thing strikes me as very christian mm-hmm. as well um oh, I, I would say it actually, are, I, I would say it actually it, it uh, probably from marston if he had any idea of it it was christian but it it and i think it also it applies to a number of religions i mean islam means submission yes. um yeah yes uh, um, but yeah the idea of a loving and, uh, submission to a higher power is very much a part of many yes. religions and wonder woman's a literal goddess in that regard you know she comes from a yep. goddess tradition and then if it's a female villain, she'll usually take them back to Paradise Island where they'll be like trained by the Amazons to be really good at bondage and yeah. also like like gymnastics and stuff. I, I, <laughs> and if it's a man, they go to jail. I mean, that, that was my reference to the um, sorority girl pillow fight fantasy. You know, the, the, a lot of the portrayals of the, the early Amazons are very sapphic and very... I don't know if cheesecake is an appropriate term, but certainly they're, they seem written, because you said they're being written by eight, read by eight-year-olds. It's not that they're being consumed as sexual fantasy, but it's clear that Marston puts a lot, a lot of his ideas came, came through that. Um, yeah, there's nothing explicitly sexual. It is very easy to read almost everything as being metaphorical metaphorically sexual (laughs) there's also a a literal sorority um in as like recurring characters so diana's best friend etta candy uh is a sorority girl like that's right like you know steve trevor army captain etta candy sorority girl and she is just constantly running around with her sorority and they're amazing because they're just like a sorority, but they're constantly fighting Nazis because <laughs> so they're good. friends with Wonder Woman. And so they'll be like, oh no, girls, Wonder Woman's in trouble. Let's punch those Nazis. <laughs> and like, Etta is this delightful, like she's a plus size woman and she is the most joyful, exuberant, fun character. Like, she's one of my favorites. Like, yeah, she's just so much fun to read about. She loves her life. She loves punching Nazis and we should all be a little bit more like her. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to be clear, for me, when I'm talking about Marston, it's not a kink-shaming thing in the slightest. I think there's um, – uh, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by him is he, he's written a lot of, of theories of power that are as – as we were both saying, like his ideas of what gender are are very dated. But his understanding of power and power dynamics and the idea of 
that that there's always a power dynamic at play, but that what really matters is like, do you consent to the power dynamic you're in? I mean, that there's some some great stuff there that I think can can be applied uh, that a lot of people today can learn from. Um, it's just fascinating to me that in this this genre that we're talking about is being at this point, you know, this is not Alan Moore stuff yet. There's no such thing as a you know 18 plus warning label for comic books. These are meant for little kids, and so that he's basically expressing his bondage fantasies through them. His you know, the thirties were a very strange time. <laughs> well, I mean, if we're going to talk about that, like, uh, so Joe Schuster, who, this is actually a little bit of a sad story, but, uh, Joe Schuster, who was one of Superman's creators, um, as I, as I mentioned before, um, DC did not treat Siegel and Schuster very well. Um, DC did not treat None of these companies treated most of these creators very well, um, and uh, there there are many long stories of um, legal battles and bankruptcy, and you know, a giving the creators credit for what they did, and b giving them money for what they did. Um, but Joe Schuster, uh, at a point in his career, was. Uh, at a financial low water. And so he did some kinky illustration work. Uh, That's awesome. And it's basically, it's all like bondage mm-hmm. and, and whips and things. But everybody in it looks like Clark and Lois because that was how he drew people. Oh, that's hilarious. They, they, there's a book. Um, I don't remember the title, but if you look up uh, like Joe Schuster. I mean, don't look it up at work. Nobody's going to, <laughs> nobody's on their office computer. Yeah. It's fine. But if you look up, like, Joe Schuster kinky art, I mean, I'm sure it'll pop up in your Google image results, but also there's, like, a whole book of them. It's beautiful work. Like I said, he was he was an amazing artist, and he was able to spend more time on this than he was on, you know, cranking out a comic book. But it is very, very weird to be like, that's just Lois whipping Clark. <laughs> that's hilarious. Good for her. It's not going to do anything. He's invulnerable. But they look like they're having a nice time. Yeah, I mean... First Google search, I'm finding exactly that. Uh, it's quite <laughs> nice that she's in. Um, but yeah, so uh, so so that's obviously a huge part of the Wonder Woman story. Um, what was the what was the reception? First of all, also I think it's interesting. Um, I looked up the first Wonder Woman comic comes out, if I understand it, just in December of 1941. So just at the time that we're actually going into World War II. Um, but it was written, obviously, before that. And if I remember, Steve Rogers is, he's a captain. There was a time in 1941 where we were sort of in this kind of twilight war of uh, kind of like what had happened in Spain, where Americans were joining up with the British Air Force and the Chinese Air Force and um, American military advisors were, were being involved and American naval ships were helping to escort convoys. But we weren't officially at war. And so I think it's interesting that that again in that setting we get this steve rogers story before the united states is officially part of the war yeah um and it's like in the story itself like they're absolutely german saboteurs who are the reason that steve is in this plane that crashes on uh paradise island so it's it's definitely i think the writing at that point was pretty much on the wall um i don't think i think that the Look, I don't know mm-hmm. what Marston versus Simon were thinking uh, when they, well, 
Joe Simon probably didn't have anything to do with what was on the cover of Captain America because it, it wasn't written, it was art. Um, but Simon and Kirby, I would guess, were probably more opposed to specifically Hitler's ideology, right. whereas Marston was probably more opposed to war as a concept. Yeah. But who who knows? And how do you even really differentiate between those two things? And, and I know that um, he, he was he was very specifically anti he was anti war and thus he was very anti militarism. And so for him like fascism and like the militarism in Japan and China and, 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 and Europe, I think he, he sort of saw those all under kind of one big lens. Yeah, and you absolutely see that in in the comics as well, which have a lot of sort of invading armies, not just the actual war that was going on, but, you know, that um, like one of Diana's main villains has always been the god of war. Right, Ares. Um, And uh, you see that, you see like invading armies from like Venus and Mars. There's a lot of like, the other thing, like, again, these comics are so weird. They're... (laughs) It's just like Diana will be going about her day and all of a sudden she and all of her sorority girlfriends, she does not attend college, I don't know why she's hanging out with them, will just get on these giant flying kangaroos and hop to (laughs) Venus to fight a war with the Venusians and then everybody will get tied up. Like... There's and then like the sorority girls will come through with like their marching band. Right. They're all playing marching band instruments and save her from the Venusians who are also Nazi or like working with the Nazis. Like they're such fun stories. And I also want to give a shout out to Peters, the artist, because he has such a a really unique um visual style that right. uh, it's really it's it's so odd it's beautiful but it's it's very strange to look at and it's just it makes everything trippier because it almost it the, he, there's an element of surrealism to mm. his work that i just find incredibly fascinating so if you get a chance to read some golden age one woman comics i highly highly recommend them well and one thing that this conversation is also bringing up is that um th- there's a reason why superheroes took off in the 1930s like that in many ways, it seems like there was a permiss- there's a permissiveness in the 1930s. We often think of it in terms of like Weimar Germany, but but it's somewhat worldwide. Like a lot of these concepts would not have ever gotten off the ground in in different eras. And we'll we'll talk later about how it's not much longer when when American society there is a big push against you know the desexualization of Wonder Woman and that we can't have any of these themes of uh, corruption or government or any of these kind of things. And I I. I'm not a huge cultural historian, but it definitely seems to me that it's it's not coincidence that these things happened in the late 30s because that there was a that was a time at which allowing kids to read stories in which everybody gets tied up and looks pretty good while they do if that's the kind of thing you like looking at um like those comics don't sell in a lot of different a lot of different times they never really get off the ground. Yeah, I mean, we have a few eras of sort of upheaval, like there's the Roaring Twenties, and then there's the Great Depression, and then there's World War Two, and the, this sort of uh, more conservative uh, framework of, I guess, the American family life was disrupted by all of those things, and yet there is a hard backlash against a lot of the things that were going on in comics um, uh, when we get into the post-war post-war era and and sort of the mccarthy era um and yeah we'll definitely like that's our that's our next episode mm-hmm. um 
I, there's also, I mean, not just the, the sexy stuff, but um, uh, the sort of, I don't want to oversell this, but the sort of socialist ideas oh, yeah. um, that you see in a lot of these early comics. Superman um, fighting corrupt landlords. And, and absolutely. I, I think there's at least one early issue where Superman is explicitly like helping a union get formed, where like the people he's fighting are like union busters. Oh, he is, he is pro-union, he is pro-worker, he is anti-landlord, he is um, constantly, like, uh, uncovering systemic corruption and corruption um, from people in positions of power. So um, government officials, but also, like, corrupt heads of orphanages and corrupt big businessmen and... and uh, this is also a very, it's a very 1930s perspective. Yeah. It's a very Jewish perspective. It's a very 1930s Jewish socialist perspective. Yeah. Um, and that was, of course, something that there was going to be a hard, hard pushback against after World War II and at the beginning of the Cold right. War. Yeah, that, that quote from uh, uh, the, the article I was talking about written by uh, uh, Goebbels, a Nazi, he specifically refers to Superman as like the product of the Jewish socialist mind and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, ask you a quick. Uh, uh, we're going pretty late, and I don't want us to go too much longer. I know it's getting late where you are. Um, but on the the business side, and we want to talk quickly about Captain Marvel, the last one. But on the business side of things, so we've been talking about like action comics and detective comics. Am I right that so far all these characters are all being created by companies that are independent of each other? Uh, no. Um, so. Uh, Superman, these were the titles of the comics. Um, so Superman was appearing in a bunch of books, all published by what was then National Publications or National Comics. So was Batman, so was Wonder Woman. Mm, okay. Um, they were all, yeah, they were all at the same company. Um, uh, Captain America was over at what was then called Timely, that would later become Marvel. And at Timely, you're also going to see um, Namor, uh, the Submariner, was a big Golden Age character for them who's still around, and the Human Torch, um, but not the one from the Fantastic Four. Oh, interesting. But the same idea. Yeah, so it, it was the same idea of a guy who can fly and is on fire, <laughs> but he was he was a robot. Um, okay, sure. <laughs> and I mean, he's still around too. Like that character still exists. But those were sort of like the big three over at Marvel right. or Timely at the time. Um, okay, so so the Marvel DC split. I mean, they weren't called the, the companies didn't have those names yet. But that goes back to the very beginnings of our superhero story. Well, not not really. Um, and actually, this is a really good transition into Captain Marvel. Um, so there were a lot of companies at the time, um, and a lot of them would later either get absorbed by, uh, mostly by DC, um, or the characters would actually be bought by uh, other publishers that had sort of um, outlasted their competitors. Um, so I mentioned Blue Beetle Comics before. Those were published by Fox Comics, mm -hmm. and if you get a chance, I also recommend looking into the history of Fox Comics, because it's absolutely hilarious like it was run by this guy named victor fox who was like just the get rich quickiest like most nonsense <laughs> egomaniac ever Did, like he does that company have anything to do with what later becomes 20th century fox or is that totally different absolutely nothing okay. they went out of business so hard <laughs> 
so hard I can't even tell you. No, he so so um so Superman uh debuted and like four seconds later Victor Fox was like, I want some of that money. Mm-hmm. And so he published uh God, I can't remember, like a, this character was named like Ultraman or like strong man like it was not it was so unsubtle it was like picture superman in like a red suit with a blue cape it was he was not even trying and i want to say he got will eisner to draw it which is like just insane to me because will eisner is like one of the loftiest names in comics and it's like getting michelangelo to draw your (laughs) rip off of the mona lisa like what are you doing dude that's fantastic um and DC sued the pants off of him right away. They were like, absolutely not. <laughs> this is plagiarism. And they won. And that character disappeared from the stands. Um, and that's sort of why you see... Uh, that's sort of why superheroes aren't all exactly like Superman. Like, you don't have oh, yeah. a million guys who are strong and can fly. You have guys who can run really fast. Or guys with magic rings. Or guys... Uh, who's, I don't know, time traveler or whatever. Like, you have variations on powers because... You have to have a distinctive identity for legal purposes, if nothing else. Right, or DC was going to sue you. (laughs) And they had the most money because they had Superman. Um, And so, uh, into into that arena steps uh, Fawcett Comics. F-A-W-C-E-T-T. Not like a a sink. Um, And they came out with this character called Captain Marvel. Um, So at the time, Captain Marvel had nothing to do with Marvel Comics, which did not exist. Um, And uh, Captain Marvel... So if you've seen the movie Shazam, that's the character that we're talking about now. Um, So... uh, It's it's uh, a child who can turn into a, a hero, and he's the the mix of like a whole bunch of different Greek God figures. I think I, I've not seen the movie. Exactly. Yes. Um, so uh, the uh, creators of Captain Marvel. So he first appeared in Wiz comics number two um, in 1940. So an early character and uh, CC Beck was the artist and is really um, the creator who is most strongly identified um, with, uh, with Captain Marvel. His work is just, it's, stunning and really creative and interesting and fun. Um, and Bill Parker was the writer, but yeah, they came up with this brilliant idea. Like, okay, Batman has Robin. That's smart. Um, kids like reading about kids. What if the kid was the superhero? Mm, yeah. Actually, I, I think, uh, no, Robin wouldn't have had anything to do with this. Uh, this would have predated Robin, but yeah, if kids want to read about superheroes. Let the kid be the superhero. And so, um, uh, Captain Marvel is Billy Batson, who is an orphan who somehow works at a radio station, even though he's a child. And uh, a wizard gives him the power to turn himself into Captain Marvel when he says the magic word Shazam, which is an acronym for, uh, it's not just Greek heroes, it's also biblical figures. It's like a weird, and, and Greek and Roman her- uh, gods and heroes, um, so it's like the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, the more strength of Atlas, yeah. <laughs> the lightning bolts of Zeus, <laughs> what, Achilles. What, what did you say the character's name was Billy what? What's the last name? Batson. Billy Batson. Um, 
we're going to look this up quickly. Um, so, interestingly, I'd never made this connection before. The Tom Hanks movie, Big, the character's name uh-huh. is Josh Baskin. That huh. can't be a coincidence. Interesting. <laughs> Just a uh, cool little thing. And the, the kid who plays young Tom Hanks in that movie is also David from Newsies. So we're coming. Wow. It all comes around. It all comes around. (laughs) It all comes back to Newsies. Um, But yeah, uh, Shazam or Captain Marvel uh, very quickly became a hugely, hugely popular character and was actually outselling Superman. Like the, the Captain Marvel comics from the, World War II years had the highest circulation figures of any hero of the time. Yeah. And um, the franchise like very quickly expanded. Um, Billy got a twin sister, Mary, who is uh, Mary Marvel. She is um, the first sort of female spinoff character, like Batgirl or Supergirl. Mm-hmm. Mary Marvel predates them by like nearly 20 years. Wow. Um, and she's, she's great. I love Mary. Um, and she's one of the earliest female superheroes. Um, and they had there's there's like an Uncle Marvel and Hoppy the Marvel Bunny. Um, there, it's a fun franchise, and like the the villains are super weird. Like one of their biggest villains is Mister Mind, who's an evil caterpillar. <laughs> like, they're just they're really fun comics, and they're very much like you look at them and you're like, yeah, kids are gonna like this. Right. They're so CC Beck's art is so kid friendly. Like it's so appealing. Um, and yeah, DC was like, oh, we are having none of this. Absolutely not. We are suing you because your guy is strong and has black hair and a cape and can fly. And, uh, this lawsuit, like basically the, the character got tangled up in a lawsuit, uh, for decades and Fawcett had to stop publishing, um, anything featuring the character in the early 50s from the early 50s on and because they could no longer publish their most popular character they went out of business right and dc bought the character this is fascinating because i admit as someone who doesn't know much i've never quite understood the interaction of three different things the name captain marvel the name marvel comics and now the um the other character that's named captain marvel as part of the marvel universe um well so here is where Marvel's like, all right, DC is being assholes. We want to be assholes too. Oh boy. So the the way that you keep a copyright or a trademark, or I don't really know the distinctions. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not a lawyer. Um, but the way you keep that that vital is you you have to keep publishing something with that character in it, or you lose the rights to that name. So um, that's why you'll see things. Um, referred to as Ashcan comics, which are just like, we're just going to publish this thing, like, to uh, secure the rights to that name. Yeah. Like, um, Spider-Woman. Uh, Marvel published a character, like a comic with a character called Spider-Woman, because they didn't want DC to publish a comic with a character called Spider-Woman. Oh, yeah, some, some of the most clunky um, comic book movies in the 1990s and 2000s were, as I understand it, for similar reasons, when there was a danger of losing losing control, and so you had to come up with some you know, Spider-Man, you had to do another Spider-Man movie or another, like some of the Fantastic Four movies that there's that thought of, you'd lose control of it. Right. You have to keep the rights. So because, uh, 
Fawcett couldn't publish Captain Marvel and DC couldn't because they were suing them for Captain Marvel uh, or over Captain Marvel. Um, Marvel, at this point, timely, had become Marvel Comics and they were like, what if we published a comic called Captain Marvel? Who could stop us? And the answer was no one. And so their That's Captain so Marvel had beautiful. absolutely... It's so it's such a dick move, and it makes me laugh every time I think about it. And so their Captain Marvel had absolutely nothing to do with any of this like magic wizard wisdom of Solomon, right? Radio child stuff. It was an alien, um, and also was a man at this point, right? Yes. So if you've seen the movie, um, Annette Bening's character uh, is is a dude in the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, his name is Marvel with a hyphen in the middle, uh, and he is an alien. Um, he came to Earth and was a superhero. Um, and uh, Carol Danvers basically hung around him and got superpowers kind of off of him, like something exploded and she got pa- I don't know. She got powers from hanging around him and was Ms. Marvel mm. uh, for... Uh, decades which in and of itself was a political stance when she was first created because ms ms period was a controversial um right uh prefix at the but that also says something about Um, when she's created there was no ms in the 1930s i I guess that means she comes along much later this was the 70s yes this was the 70s um and so uh there have been there have been like five or six different Captain Marvels over at Marvel because like the original alien guy died and then his kid was Captain Marvel and then this um, another woman uh, Monica Rambeau was Captain Marvel who's actually the little girl um, in the movie mm, right uh, and yeah there have been a whole whole bunch of characters who were Captain Marvel until finally um, I think in about twenty fourteen I want to say. Carol finally became Captain Marvel. And then we got a movie called Captain Marvel that just ignores all that other stuff because it's very confusing. (laughs) And so because Marvel had the rights to the name Captain Marvel, when DC bought the character of Captain Marvel from the dying Fawcett comics, they could publish comics about a character named Captain Marvel, but they could not put that name on the cover and sell them as Captain Marvel comics, which is why all of a sudden you started to see DC comics called um, Shazam, the power of Shazam or Shazam and the monster society of evil, which is a great comic. (laughs) Um, And eventually a few years ago, they were like, let's just change the character's name to Shazam, which is like, well, then he can't say his own name because he'll turn back into a little boy. But okay, I understand why you made that choice. And then we got a movie called Shazam at the same time that we got a movie called Captain Marvel. And it was very confusing for everybody. So I want to start us wrapping up. There's two questions for me that come up. One is, so when um, the, the comic company decides to rename itself Marvel Comics, is that company name at all because of captain marvel over at the competitor or is that that just a coincidence oh no i think that i don't think that had anything to do with okay it. um yeah I, I've, I can't imagine that they would name themselves marvel comics after a rival publisher's character right and, i mean certainly my uh, my understanding is that like just the word like oh that's such a marvel like that that word was in much more common you today if you said that word you'd people would think you're referring to the comics, but I think that word was just in much more common parlance at the time. So that would make sense. Well, yeah, it's like the idea of saying someone is a Superman 
was a much more generic concept and now you are saying somebody is specifically like the character Mm -hmm. superman yeah i think i definitely that's true the other question is um and this is going to go go beyond but just since we're establishing kind of these two different companies am i right then that marvel doesn't have a wonder woman equivalent figure for quite some time or was there a woman superhero who started at, at in what becomes marvel around this time who just didn't survive as long as wonder woman um Yes and no. Um, so one thing that you start to see in that post-war era, and we'll get more into this next time, but after the war, superheroes stopped being as popular as they had been. They just like were not on trend anymore. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um, Marvel specifically, or Timely at the time, but one of the things that they specifically did to try and get back that readership or, or pivot to a slightly different readership was they came up with a lot of female superheroes. Mm, okay. Um, or superhero might be a strong word for some of these characters, um, but they they put out books starring women in these like fantastic adventure comics um, to try. Okay, we're losing the boys. Let's see if we can get the girls, right. um, which didn't really work. Um, and that's where you have characters like there was Miss America at the time. Um, there's Venus, who she. It, canonically exists within the marvel universe as a superhero character but she's literally just the goddess venus who lives on the planet venus but then she decides to come to earth and edit a fashion magazine (laughs) and she doesn't fight crime she just edits a fashion magazine of course she does you know but technically she lives in the same universe as like iron man Uh um i'm sure he's hit on her he has to have hit on her at some point in the universe oh absolutely i mean i think she's much more like at the time she was like i'm the goddess of love and everybody was like okay and they thought she was crazy Uh and now i think they know she's the goddess of love and that that's not going to stop tony but he's more aware of the consequences um but yeah they didn't have a prominent female lead in that way and i mean dc or national only had wonder woman like it wasn't like they're had a lot of there were other female characters in black canary um in the late 40s um but you really didn't have a lot of uh female leads and marvel historically has not because dc has a lot of those spin-off female characters so batwoman and batgirl and supergirl and um catwoman and yeah, Marvel doesn't have, really... there isn't like a, a woman Captain America or Iron Girl, or there, there sort of is much, much later, but yeah, it's not a, a big part of the universe. Yeah, it's only recently that, um, that you know, Carol has sort of stepped forward to become that very prominent female character, and most of their really well-known female characters are within the X-Men franchise, and they're all sort of ensemble characters, so you're not going to see that same kind of prominence for Jean Grey or Storm because they don't they don't have their right. own book. They're in X-Men. Right. And that's definitely, I think, a topic we're going to keep going back to because it's, as it comes up over the over the history. So, well, Jess, Jess this was fantastic. I, I feel like I learned a lot. And I hope our audience really did. And, and both just the history itself, but also how it ties into some of these ethical questions we talk about. I mean, it's just, I know sometimes when, I tell people about the podcast, their first question is like, oh, well, is there really that much ethics in superheroes? Like, and, and as we said, sometimes 
you know, you get parts of the fandom who think that, you know, take the ethics out of my superheroes. I, I love hearing that these kind of questions have been a part of all this from the very beginning um, in, in both positive and sometimes negative ways. And so um, is there anything else you want to kind of, is there a topic or a question or an idea that you didn't really get a chance to express that you were kind of chomping at the bit to get into today? I think, I mean, just when you were saying that, um, I think one of the, the real questions that is raised by this era is, you know, what what is a superhero and what is a superhero supposed to do? Yeah. And not to not to throw another hour onto this recording, um, but I think that that's a really meaty question. And is it, you know, is it, is it a superhero's job to only stop supervillains? It is. Mm. A, is it a superhero's job to stop uh, an abusive husband? Is it a superhero's job to protect a bank? Yeah. Is it a superhero's job to get involved in a war with a foreign country, especially if they are from another planet right. or uh, an island civilization? I think those are all really really interesting questions that are raised and that we we sort of take for granted but they were they were still figuring out the answer then or can you can can a superhero kill yeah or can a superhero kill by accident and not feel bad about yeah. it no i thank you and I, I we had talked a while ago about using that as kind of a framing question for all of this and i i feel very dumb that i've totally forgotten about it <laughs> we've talked about it so much but i think you're right that that is a great question and um I don't want to throw another hour into this, especially for you. It's a lot later than where it is for me. Um, but I am kind of curious your thoughts on that, especially because one thing I would, I would start with is in today's comics, at least especially the ones that I most uh, resonate with, often there's this idea of we need a superhero because either the, the normal human abilities either are not up to the task if it's you know fighting an alien invasion or are not doing the job they should, you know, because the, the like in Gotham, the police are corrupt or the police are bought off. And so they're not Batman has to step up to fill in for the, the, the people who aren't. Are those ideas later or do you see some of that like this early on the idea of like, you know, the Metropolis police aren't doing their job. So Superman has to step up or the U.S. military is just so overwhelmed because I, I can imagine in comics, they're supposed to be patriotic and in the midst of World War Two you don't want to tell a story that says the U S military is going to lose unless it has a superhero. Cause that's kind of certainly not very supportive of the U S military. Like where, where, where did this idea of like why superheroes are needed come in? Well, specifically with the war and with Superman, they actually had to come up with a reason that he wasn't involved. Um, because yeah, like no matter what you do, like what are you going to do? Tell a story where Superman does get involved with the war and then, he ends it, but in real life, people are still dying. Like that's no good yeah. either. Um, so you can punch Hitler, but you can't kill him. Well, yeah. I mean, they, they just, they had to kind of keep him away from a lot of, there are definitely war stories, but they mostly kept them away because it, it's just, it's just kind of tacky, honestly. Um, and so there's, I love this. Um, there's a story where he, you know, because he is, he lives in America at the onset of World War II. He actually goes to enlist. Um, but when he's reading the eye chart, he his x-ray vision kicks in by accident and he looks into the next room and reads the wrong chart. And they're like, wow, this guy can't oh, see that's a hilarious. thing. 
And that's why Clark Kent did not serve in the armed forces <laughs> during World War II. And I love that so much. Um, you know, I've heard lots of uh, really awful draft dodging excuses. That's a much better one. <laughs> <laughs> it was by accident. He didn't mean to. Um, but can but, you imagine being the guy but, next to Clark Kent at basic? Like, why can't you do 48 push-ups? Clark's on one uh, 1,048, you know? like. Well, he'd have to fake it. And then it would be like, why are you so beefy, but you can't do a push-up? Yeah. What's wrong with you? It would be like watching the real Chris Evans uh, pretending that he can't do push-ups before they did all the CGI right. in the first movie. Um, but yeah, like I think there's definitely a certain element of corruption um, that uh, superheroes are fighting less from the... like average cops at the time um the depiction of cops was much more sort of like a goofy irish beat cop stereotype they're kind of dumb but they're not malicious um i think it's less the idea is less that these forces are so overwhelming that we need a superhero to save us because the superheroes weren't that powerful then i mean early superman he couldn't fly he wasn't that strong um he didn't have any of his vision powers like that all came gradually um and yeah, there were, you know, okay, this mad scientist has a laser and I have to go fight him because I'm the only one who can. But it was less, I have to fight this because no one else can and more, I have to fight this because I'm here and I right. can. Um, it, it was not so much, and I think this is very much part of a, a World War II collective patriotic mentality um we're all doing our part and uh whether that is you know fighting saboteurs or collecting rubber you know and there that was that was something that's emphasized in the comics like i i recently read a green arrow comic where uh they're pursuing some gangsters um and they have to stop them by shooting arrows at their car. And Green Arrow says to Speedy, don't shoot out the tires. That rubber is valuable. It's hilarious. But very true. I mean, but like I, there's, we were talking yeah. about the, the Bond ads, you know, and, and there's racist imagery in them. But, but the language is all like, you know, Superman's a hero in this way. Hey, kids, you can be a hero by collecting scrap metal or that kind of thing. Um, exactly. It, it's not that we need somebody to save us. It's that huh. everybody should do what they can and some people can do a whole hell of a lot well and that's also it's a connection i'd never made before but i think it does speak a lot to the zeitgeist idea of what makes a hero because before pearl harbor but even afterward like the the case for going to war with nazi germany in the late 30s no one was thinking that the germans were going to invade the united states it was never about sort of self-protection it was about this terrible thing is happening to the people we're, we're allies with, you know, the, the French and the, the English and things like that. And so we should help to stop it, you know, and that we we have this power and we can go out and do good in the world, um, which obviously I'm, there's also the quote marks being made with my fingers, you know, because that that concept can get in very dangerous ways. But, you know, and even after Pearl Harbor, like it becomes the excuse for it. But what had happened was that one distant port in a, non-american state had been attacked and even then there was still this idea of like you have look what's happening to the the people in in asia and and even more so to the british colonialists in those places but but still there was this idea of 
even if we're not in danger, terrible things are being done to good people and we should go save them. Um, and so, yeah, it makes sense that that would be kind of the heroic idea of the day as well in, in the superheroes. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do think that there was a certain sense that, like, the, this uh, imperialism is not going to stop at the ocean's borders. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think there, there's an idea of if you can do something, you should do something. Right. And I think that's an idea that, you know, continues. It's very much an idea that's prevalent in Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, but it's it's something for me, and you know maybe it's something that I I see in these golden age comics because it is something that I find very resonant because I'm not particularly moved by the idea of somebody coming to save me, but I am moved by the idea of somebody uh, modeling how we can all save each right. other. Yeah, I I think that's a really good way to put it. I know. You and I have somewhat on pod and somewhat off pod had these running discussions about the what you can call the team Tony team cap discussion. But but with Superman and Batman takes on a very different element. But just this idea of, you know, the the positive versus dangers of someone like Superman, you know, going out into the world to to fight evil uh, and all that kind of thing. And so I think using that question of how is it what is a hero defined as during this time is one that we're going to keep coming back to because it's pretty fundamental to this whole question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last kind of framing thing I want to ask, and I think you, you, you've mostly answered it, but I know it is going to change over our history. Um, so at this point, we're, the, the target audience is who? It's, it's, it's like 8 to 14? It's, it's what, what, it seems like we were talking right now about prepudescent kids, for the most part, is the target audience. Is, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's everyone, not necessarily with the comic books, but with the characters. Right. I mean, again, you know, Superman was in every form of mass media that existed, um, but so were a lot of these characters. You had uh, Batman um, had movie serials as well. Uh, Blue Beetle had a radio show of all people. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it's it's mediocre (laughs) um so those were i mean you know the family had one radio yeah uh everybody was going to the same movies like there was no real separating that by demographic um and so these characters were known to everyone and appealed to everyone um but in terms of uh uh who was buying the comics um kids absolutely like they were they were i think it was more don't make it to make it accessible to the kids not make it only for the kids because they're also shipping stacks of, of comics off to like the gis in oh interesting europe and okay. asia yeah so which i mean that's also like if you you know three years ago you were 15 and you were reading comics and now you're 18 and you're far from home yeah i, yeah. I would want somebody to send me some captain marvel yeah, that too. makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense i, I would really want to be distracted <laughs> um but yeah it was pre- predominantly children yeah, that makes sense well cool well um thank you so much jess this has been a great conversation uh as always fans curious what you have to think um as always fans curious what you have to say uh you can find us on facebook on twitter uh, at, at 
You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Superhero Ethics. You can also find us, you can also contact us, superheroethics at gmail.com. We love feedback. We love conversations. Um, Jess, we've talked about, um, you do a lot of great work, both as a writer and a podcaster. If folks want to know more about your perspectives, especially, I know you've written a lot of great articles about, uh, comic book history. Where can they find your stuff? Um, yes, I've written a lot about comics and specifically comic book history, um, at Book Riot. Um, you can find me tweeting about comics at Jess Plummer. And, um, I have, uh, my Superman movie podcast, which we've mentioned a few times, uh, which is called Flights and Tights. Great. Yeah, definitely check both those out. They're really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm still very sad that you've made me not love Christopher Reeve's Superman quite as much. And I, <laughs> I will fight you. I think Christopher Reeve, Richard Pryor, Superman is fantastic and funny. Um, but that's a very different topic. Uh, but definitely check her stuff out. Um, this podcast is part of the Stranded Panda Podcast Network. And so I'd advise you also check out some of our other great podcasts. Um, my other podcasts include Star Wars Universe Podcast, uh, as well as uh, Binger's Assemble. I'm sorry. Uh, Binger's Assemble is another great one in which they do movies. I'm also on Pandavision. Pandavision is a podcast where we look at TV shows that don't fit into a full verse, but still have a lot of great things to talk about, and generally are ones that are very superhero connected. So we've done a set of episodes on um, The Boys, and we'll be launching a new one when The New Boys comes out. Um, you want to talk about a version of The Big Blue Boy Scout in a very different way. Uh, the TV show The Boys is a great one for that. We've done Umbrella Academy. Uh, now a couple others I'm not involved with are doing Lovecraft Country, which is going to be a very good, uh, a fantastic show. I can already tell just from the first episode. A lot of great discussions happening there. So on behalf of all of us, thank you all so much. Have a great day. Bye.